Well, good morning, everyone. It is Tuesday, August 15th, and there is significant breaking news from overnight. We're glad you're with us. Donald Trump has been indicted in Georgia, the former president facing 13 charges rooted in his efforts to overturn Joe Biden's 2020 election win in the state. And it's not just Trump. 18 other defendants are named in this indictment, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and lawyer Rudy Giuliani. Now, according to the 98-page document, each defendant is facing racketeering charges. Additionally, Trump was charged with soliciting a public official to violate their oath. All 19 defendants now have 10 days to surrender by noon on August 25th. Former President Trump says the grand jury was, quote, rigged. He calls the case a witch hunt aimed at interrupting his 2024 campaign and his allies are rallying to his defense. Now, it's important to remember this is the fourth criminal indictment. Trump now facing a total of 91 charges in Georgia, Florida, New York and Washington, D.C. We have a ton to get to. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, if you're just waking up, this is what has happened. It is significant. It will go down in history as Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants are facing a slew of felony charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia. They include RICO, racketeering charges, which were designed to take down mob bosses and gang leaders. The indictment lays out the sprawling alleged scheme, and it includes Trump pressuring Georgia state officials to find votes for his, his, him to win, creating fake electors to give Trump the victory instead of Joe Biden and illegally breaching voting systems to try and find evidence of voter fraud. And we have team coverage all morning this morning covering all angles. Our legal and political experts are standing by for analysis. We're going to start with CNN correspondent Nick Valencia live outside the Fulton County Courthouse. Nick, Trump has been ordered to surrender by next Friday. What's he facing here? Well, that's right. Fannie Willis giving Donald Trump and his co-defendants until August 25th to turn themselves in. And Phil and Poppy, in many ways, yesterday, which was uh, two years almost in the making, was the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. A Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment. The 98-page indictment lists 41 felony counts against former President Trump and 18 co-defendants to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election results, accusing them of, quote, unlawfully conspired and endeavored to conduct and participate in a criminal enterprise. Trump charged with 13 counts in the indictment. Every individual charged in the indictment is charged with one count of violating Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act through participation in a criminal enterprise in Fulton County, Georgia and elsewhere to accomplish the illegal goal of allowing Donald J. Trump to seize the presidential term of office beginning on January 20th, 21. The indictment also included an additional 30 unindicted co-conspirators, in addition to the charged defendants. In a statement, Trump's attorneys calling the grand jury presentation, quote, one-sided and the events of Monday, quote, shocking and absurd. Ohio Rep Jim Jordan, a Trump ally, tweeting out, he did nothing wrong. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying, justice should be blind, but Biden has weaponized government against his leading political opponent, 
to interfere in the 2024 election. But uh, it was it was a, a very uh, intense uh, you know, meeting. Jeff Duncan, CNN contributor and former Georgia lieutenant governor on his testimony before an Atlanta grand jury. I can tell you that there was the highest level of attention in that room uh, from folks with the district attorney's office to through the jurors. It was just an extremely uh, intense uh, period of time and uh, everybody was prepared. The indictment stem from a two and a half year criminal investigation into Trump's alleged interference in the 2020 Georgia presidential election, including his call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I just want to find 11,780 votes. To the fake electors who convened to cast illegitimate votes for Trump, the investigation also accuses multiple defendants of harassment of election workers and a voting systems breach in rural Coffee County. I want to try him and be respectful for our sovereign states. And while Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis says she intends to try the 19 defendants together, it's up to the judge on when the trial will proceed. We do want to move this case along, and so we will be asking for a proposed order that occurs a trial date within the next six months. So this wasn't just about Trump's so-called perfect call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in which he encouraged him and pressured him to try to find more votes. This was about a pressure campaign as well on Georgia lawmakers. It was about the illegal accessing of voting data in rural Coffin County. And it was just an overall pressure campaign by Trump and his operatives to try to overturn the election results here in Georgia. We were initially told that Fonnie Willis and her team would take up to two days to present to the grand jury. Instead, yesterday, they tackled this all in one day, the final result being that Donald Trump has been indicted yet again. Phil, Poppy. Nick Valencia reporting for us live in Atlanta. Thanks very much. And joining us now are CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. Michael, I want to start where Nick left off in terms of this isn't about one specific call or one specific instance that has been reported on. There are several pillars that are laid out in these charges that thread together. What was your sense after reading the indictment about the case that was actually brought here? So it's a very interesting indictment because part of the indictment really is based on words spoken by the co-conspirators, the pressure campaign. But other parts of it was based on the actions that these people undertook, the breach of the voting machines, the harassment of the workers, the filing of false documents. So all of those acts cannot be defended this was political speech or otherwise First Amendment protected. And it's those things that'll be the hardest to defend against. Because remember, in a RICO indictment of this sort, all they need to prove is that two or more of these acts took place by the co-conspirators. And if so, then they are all guilty. They're all jointly liable. And so I think it's a very difficult defense for the Trump team to make here. Um Joey, Fonnie Willis, the DA, has been successful in bringing RICO cases um, against um, rappers, against teachers, actually, in Atlanta for a scheme there. So she knows how to do this. It's incredibly complex. It took two and a half years. She's going to try to try Trump with 18 other co-defendants in six months. Let's just listen to Sarah Murray asking her about that. Do you intend to try all of these defendants together? Do I intend to try the 19 defendants in this indictment together? Yes. Can that happen, that timeline, that many folks? So backing up, what happens is defense attorneys persistently make motions for severance. What does that mean? It means that when, when you're a defense attorney and you're embroiled 
specifically in an indictment like this or many others, right, where there's so many. If, you know, we talk about indictments that are speaking indictments. This indictment is singing. It has so much specific information relative to the criminal enterprise, the criminal activities. So what happens? What happens is, is that there are individuals that, that have individual lawyers who say, look, my act is not similarly situated to another. And as a result of that, I'm going to move to sever my case. That is, I should be tried separately and independently. And there are acts that may be specific to others that may really inform criminality as to me that I shouldn't be responsible for. So I think before we get to trying 18 defendants or anything else, I think the attorneys will make specific motions to try to sever and separate the cases. We're not there yet. Which all slows everything down. It does. Uh, but the reality is, is that some uh, defendants might take priority, right? There's one particular defendant. I think he's named as Donald John Trump in the indictment. Yeah. And See, that might which, be, which right, one is, which one is he? <laughs> exactly. That might be much more of a priority. But remember, though, that this indictment is the fourth, right? Captain Obvious. And that means that there are others, the two mm -hmm. federal indictment, and then, of course, the one in Manhattan here in New York. And so in terms of how they play out, Poppy, we'll see what gets tried first. Mm -hmm. If anything comes subservient to the other, if Jack Smith, for example, calls and says, let me try my cases first, don't know how that'll play out. But this will take a significant amount of time to try for sure. Michael, following up on Poppy's great point related to the RICO charges, uh, there's a mandatory minimum here. It's on a state level, not a federal level. It seems to a non-lawyer and outside observer, this carries a, a weight, a level of uh, threat to the former president that perhaps we haven't seen in such an acute sense in the other cases. Can you talk to people about what this actually entails on the RICO side? Sure. Well, you have to prove an enterprise and you have to prove acts and furtherance of that enterprise. And that's what's been laid out in these indictments. And to Joey's point, I think that there are a lot of people in this indictment who are going to seek pleas pretty quickly. Some will seek severance for sure, but I think they're going to seek pleas because, as you say, Phil, the RICO charge carries mandatory minimums, meaning you must spend time in jail. It's a five-year mandatory minimum, maximum of 20 years. So with a mandatory minimum, I think what's going to be tricky for uh, Fannie Willis, the DA, is what is she going to let the sort of page two defendants in this indictment plead to in exchange for their cooperation or just to get them out of the case. So this gets skinny down to the top tier co-defendants. So she has a yeah. much more manageable trial. Just one interesting thing also, just quickly, Joey, about like state, you make a great point because if, if he becomes president again, he can't get rid of a state, a state conviction. And in Georgia, neither can the governor on right. their own. It's got to go to a, a parole board, a yes. pardon board. So that's significant, Poppy, for the following reasons. We know we have the two federal indictments, right? And then it'll be an open question if he becomes president, does he pardon himself? Does he have the ability to pardon himself? As it relates to the indictment pending in New York, and then you look at the indictment in Georgia, you don't have the ability as a federal official, even if you're president, because states are sovereigns onto themselves. Everyone, every state has a governor. They have a legislature. They make their own rules. You have no ability to pardon yourself. So then the issue becomes, does it ever get tried? Because, of course, if he, if he becomes president, it delays it further. And then do you try it after he leaves office? Again, I'm assuming a lot of things we just don't know yet. But uh, it's, it's an important point to make because if he becomes president, whether this actually sticks to him is going to be an open question. Um, Joey, stand by. Michael, stay with us. Donald Trump now has to turn himself in to face these charges in Georgia how he could try to use that event to his advantage politically, that's ahead. Plus, surveillance video of a voting systems breach in a Georgia county, how that could play a critical role in this case. Stay with us.
And you're looking at a snapshot for history. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Trump, 18 allies indicted in Georgia. That's the front page this morning in Fulton County in Atlanta, where these charges were brought by the district attorney, Fonnie Willis. Among the key pieces of evidence in the indictments, surveillance video showing a Republican county official and a team of operatives working for Trump attorney Sidney Powell inside. You can see it right here, a restricted area of the local elections office in Coffee County, Georgia. Another this photo taken by a journalist who says he walked in on a secret meeting between Republican fake electors that had gathered to sign an illegitimate certification for then-President Trump. There's also Trump's infamous phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, the one Trump himself called perfect. Senate legal analyst Joey Jackson and former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldner back with us. Also joining the conversation, Patricia Murphy, a political reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You just saw the front page. I don't think Patricia has slept maybe in two years at this point in time. Uh, But Patricia, I want to talk about uh, another element in terms of the specifics that make up these indictments. And that is the case of Ruby Freeman uh, and uh, Shea Moss Moss and... I think that sometimes that gets lost in everything. The human. The human element of this. And I want to start by playing some sound from what Ruby Freeman's life has been like, at least according to her own testimony to the January 6th committee. There is nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? The president of the United States is supposed to represent every American, not to target one, but he targeted me. Patricia, there's been so many moving parts, not just of this case, but of all of the different indictments that the former president is facing. Can you walk people through Ruby Freeman's role here and why it is a central piece of these indictments? Um, Absolutely. Ruby Freeman, as well as her daughter, Shea Moss, were two Fulton County election workers at State Farm Arena um, in 2020 during the elections. And there was video, surveillance video taken um, of the vote counting process down at State Farm Arena. At a certain point during the evening, those election workers were told by the Secretary of State's office to stop counting and to go home. He changed his mind, but all of that was um, caught on video. Obviously, it was surveillance video was meant to be caught on video. Um, They began to count that count those votes again. Um, But that video then became the subject of conspiracy theories here in Georgia in the aftermath of the elections, um, including and particularly by uh, Rudy Giuliani and President Donald Trump. Um, President Trump and Giuliani both named Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss multiple times, uh, compared them to drug dealers, said that they were um, overturning the elections and fraudulently overturning the elections. Um, Those two women have shown um, that their lives were mostly destroyed by this process, um, by all of those lies that were told by Giuliani and Trump. Um, And I think it goes to the fact that these were not victimless crimes. This was not just about paperwork. So it wasn't even just about an election. Um, They are just a they are just two of the election workers here in Georgia um, who have been harassed, intimidated and are the subject of some of these indictments. You know, Joey, um, President Trump on that now famous infamous call to the secretary of state of Georgia on January 2nd, 2021 and called Ruby Freeman a scammer and a hustler. And then Patricia brings up what Rudy Giuliani said about her and her daughter's actions. Let's listen to that. Of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman Moss, 
and one other gentleman, quite obviously, surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. I mean, it's, outsta- it's, it's obvious to anyone who's a criminal investigator or prosecutor, they are engaged in surreptitious illegal activity again that day. And that's a week ago, and they're still walking around Georgia lying. Should have been, they should have been, uh, should have been questioned already. Uh, their places of work, their homes should have been searched. He's he accused them falsely of a crime, and now those words are used to charge him with a crime. Well, as they should be, right? Words have consequences, and conduct has consequences. And when you have someone who's propagating a narrative who knows that it's false, and they're doing it in conjunction with this criminal enterprise with other people uh, surrounded by them, all engaged in a concerted effort to overturn an election, that's problematic. You can't go and you can't say things in public. You can Um, But at the end of the day, if the things that you say are false, misleading, et cetera, they can come back to haunt you and they have. So I think this is a good example of the point that because you'll hear a lot of people today bring up, I think, like after the last indictment, free speech. He can say things like that. Rudy Giuliani can legally say things like that. Explain how it becomes a crime and explain how it becomes RICO when it's in furtherance of an, an in coordination with a crime. So let's with, talk with about, other actions. So let's talk people. about RICO first. What happens is, is that in the RICO statute, which is a broad ranging statute, which speaks to a criminal enterprise, you need two pattern acts, at least two, right? The indictment has plenty more than that. And so let's talk about the pattern acts. You can talk about the pattern acts with respect to, uh, you know, the computer tampering. You could talk about them in terms of uh, Mr. Giuliani intimidating witnesses. Uh, there are a number of uh, uh, soliciting public officials uh, as it relates to violating their oath. The indictment speaks to a lot of that. So there's patent acts that deal with that. And then you have, in terms of a conspiracy, which are two or more people who enter into an agreement, these are people who are conspiring collectively. And you can conspire, right, with a team, with a criminal enterprise to do some pretty nasty things with verbal conduct. That's the essence of it. In fact, the indictment lays out a number of text messages, a number of conversations that they have, all to further and propagate a narrative which was false. That's problematic, troubling, and according to Georgia, allegedly criminal. Michael, Poppy mentioned the call between the former president and Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state. Uh, It's probably underappreciated the Ruby Freeman comments that are on that call that Poppy referenced. What everybody knows about is his comments related to finding 11,000 plus votes, exactly one vote more than he was losing by at at that point, uh, I believe. The defense from Trump supporters, some legal uh, officials that are tied to his operation has been, you can't prove he meant to falsely find or find fake votes or basically make that number up. He meant find real votes that were just miscounted or weren't counted. Is that a viable defense here? Well, it's a viable defense. I don't know it's a winning defense, but it's viable in the sense that you can make that in a court of law without it being called frivolous. I think what they will say was that he did not undertake these phone calls with criminal intent, willfulness, that he was doing this in good faith because he honestly believed that he had won this election and it was stolen from him. So that's the nature of their defense. The problem is, is that This indictment alleges, as we talked about a little bit ago, Phil, other things beyond that phone call which are not speech protected. They are action, um, and those actions have no First Amendment overlay to them, and they're really not easily defended. And in fact, 
as we're talking about the Ruby Freeman stuff, you'll notice that Rudy Giuliani was sued for defamation for those statements, and he has admitted that they were lies, that he admitted that they were not true. He said he doesn't believe that he owes her money, but he's acknowledged these are lies. And so this is an acknowledgement that would come in in evidence in this case. So it essentially proves this aspect of the indictment. Yeah, it's a very good point. Uh, guys, stay with us. We're going to have you back for the next panel. Uh, there's a lot to dig into here, including the names you very much know at this point. Giuliani, Meadows, Eastman, Powell. But there are others that you may not have heard of. Next, a look at all 18 co-defendants named in the Georgia indictment and their alleged roles. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. You're looking at the photos of the 19 people charged in the Georgia indictment. Many are faces like former President Donald Trump, his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, lawyer Rudy Giuliani, that you know quite well. However, many are not nationally known, like Coffee County official Misty Hampton, former G- Georgia GOP chair David Schaefer. Let's bring back in Joey Jackson, Michael Zeldin, and Patricia Murphy. Uh, Patricia, to that point, uh, because I think this is a very critical element of this in terms of the local Republican officials who played significant roles here. While I personally am partial to the individual who is a publicist for R. Kelly and Kanye West, uh, it's the local politicos, the state-level politicos that you would know so well. Explain who matters and why. Yeah, the names that jump out to us, of course, are David Schaefer, who was the sitting uh, Republican Party chairman during the time for the state of Georgia. Um, Also, Sean Still is a sitting member of the Georgia General Assembly. Also, Misty Hampton was the elections director down in Coffee County, a rural county. It's about a three and a half hour drive from Atlanta, Um, as well as Kathy Latham, who was the Republican Party chair of Coffee County. Um, I think this goes to the fact that many of these people swept up in the um, were in uh, in a way private citizens. Uh, they were not. These are not um, kind of headline making names. You would m- maybe know them in the grocery store, but these are not famous people here in Georgia. Um, these are people's neighbors and friends. Um, and this entire process since 2020 has really swept Georgians up into Donald Trump's um, conspiracies in a way that is just totally unprecedented. And I think as these indictments go forward, this will be a really difficult part of this process um, for people here in Georgia to see people who they know privately um, swept up into this huge international um, story. Michael, I want to talk about Mark Meadows and all of this, because he is not only the highest ranking White House official to be charged in the Georgia indictment, obviously, outside of Trump, he's charged with solicitation of the violation of the oath of office uh, by a public officer. This is for him being on that phone call and participating in it with the secretary of state of Georgia, uh, Brad Raffensperger, when Trump asked him to find all these votes. He did not answer questions. We know from one of the original jurors on this grand jury that he took the fifth over and over again when he was asked uh, questions before them. But he's not indicted federally in Jack Smith's cases, but he is in this. What does that tell you? Well, I have to say, probably this was the biggest surprise for me when I opened up this indictment and I saw Mark Meadows' name there, because I assumed that he was cooperating with the uh, federal prosecutors and therefore the state prosecutors. So we don't know, I guess, who the identity of unindicted co-conspirator number six is in the Jack Smith indictment. So I suppose it raises the possibility that that is 
is Mark Meadows. But if Mark Meadows is cooperating in the federal case, but not cooperating in the state case, that creates a host of problems for both sets of prosecutors. He can't take the stand in a federal case and admit things that will then be held against him in a state case. So he's either going to be lying in one or lying in the other. So they've got to figure out what's going on here in order to get their two indictments aligned so that Mark Meadows doesn't actually hurt them in both. Do they talk about, like, does Fonnie Willis talk to Jack Smith about Mark Meadows' role in all this stuff? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I would think so. In the in the federal state investigations that I was involved in when I was a prosecutor, we always coordinated with the state people when we were bringing our you know federal cases forward. And I would be very surprised if there wasn't this federal state cooperation in this case. But this this indictment that contains Mark Meadows, but the federal indictment that doesn't raises questions about whether or not there was some slippage between these two hmm. prosecuting teams, and that has to be resolved now. It's such a great point. And our Sarah Murray, who has just absolutely dominated the story, I'm a little biased. She as has. A, as a colleague uh, and friend, but has dominated the story, asked this question to Fonnie Willis last night. And what's so interesting about it is, I think it was only a week or 10 days ago where Fonnie Willis was asked about whether or not she had been working with the special counsel's office. And she said she wouldn't recognize Jack Smith if she saw him in a grocery store and seemed to say no. This was what she said when Sarah Murray asked the same question last night. Listen. Have you had any contact with the special counsel about overlap between these cases? And do you intend to try all of these defendants together? Do I intend to try the 19 defendants in this indictment together? Yes. Yes. And have you had any contact with the special counsel about the overlap between this indictment and the federal indictment? I'm not going to discuss our investigation at this time. So, Joey, the first answer surprised me because I assumed in something like this, again, not a lawyer, I haven't served in any of these capacities, but I assume they have to be talking given the scale of the overlap here. Uh, The second one sounds more like what you would think would be the answer, particularly if you are trying to communicate, need to communicate to some degree. So you don't overlap. You don't run into each other. Right. So it's important, though, of course, right, to have independence of the investigation. Right. right? And so the state has to move forward. They have, of course, as we know, they impaneled that special grand jury. Remember that? That grand jury did not. This is in Georgia. They did not have the ability to return indictments. I heard from 75 witnesses. So you want to make sure that the integrity of one investigation is solid with your witnesses. The federal government has their witnesses. And at the end of the day, that ensures the public that all is moving smoothly. It doesn't mean that they can't speak with each other and see what information that they have. They can. In each other's totally books. can. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Joey Jackson, Michael Zodin, Patricia Murphy. We appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Fulton County's Fonnie Willis, a DA we've been talking about all morning, is taking on the biggest case of her career. More on her next. I make decisions in this office based on the facts and the laws. Um, The law is completely nonpartisan. That's how decisions are made in every case. We look at the facts, we look at the law, and we bring charges. That is Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis addressing her decision to charge former President Trump and 18 of his allies over efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. The former president has taken aim consistently at Willis throughout this two-plus-year investigation. Just last night, after news of the indictment broke, his campaign released a statement calling her a, quote, rabid partisan and a biased prosecutor. But Willis insists she is just doing her job, a job she took on after winning for 2020 election, our Randy K reports on her rise to Fulton County District Attorney. 
It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, black, white, Democrat or Republican. If you violated the law, you're going to be charged. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis talking about her investigation into Donald Trump's alleged attempt to influence Georgia's 2020 election. At the center of it all, a phone call Trump had with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger after the election. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. Very thankful that you are here. When that call was made, Willis had only been in office for one day. Ever since, she's been leading the charge on the investigation. Been working for two and a half years, and we're ready to go. Ready to go, and in the process, ruffling Trump's feathers. In Georgia, the racist district attorney goes after me for a perfect phone call. This woman is not a capable woman. She's a racist. And this is a person that wants to indict me. Those accusations of racism, unfounded. Team Trump also included Willis in this ad called The Fraud Squad. And Biden's newest lackey, Atlanta DA, Bonnie Willis. Despite it all, Willis hardly seems rattled by Trump's continued attacks. It's ridiculous in nature, but I support his right to be protected by the First Amendment and say what he likes. Since investigating Trump, Willis says she's been subjected to racist taunts. I've never been called the N-word so much in my life. Willis, a Democrat, was elected Fulton County's first female district attorney after ousting a six-term incumbent in a primary. The solution to this problem? She'd built a name for herself as a leading prosecutor in the Atlanta public school cheating scandal, securing convictions for 11 of the 12 defendants. Fake machines, yeah. In her first two years in office, Willis has juggled investigating Trump and subpoenaing some of his top allies, while also going after gangs like Drug Rich. She's also handed down racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations indictments to popular rappers, including Young Thug and Gunna. Willis has cited the rapper's song lyrics as evidence in the indictments against them, something her critics say infringes on First Amendment rights. I have some legal advice. Don't confess to crimes on rap lyrics if you do not want them used, or at least get out of my county. Willis was born in California. Her name, Fani, is Swahili and means prosperous. After her parents' divorce, she was raised primarily by her father. He was a criminal defense attorney and member of the Black Panther Party. After attending Howard University, she graduated from Emory University School of Law in 1996. She worked in the private sector for a time, then joined the Fulton County Prosecutor's Office in 2001. According to the New York Times, a spokesperson says that since Willis became DA, her office's conviction rate has stood at close to 90 percent. I truly believe God personally selected me here for this moment in time, and I'm going to do the job that um, I'm blessed to be able to do. Randy Kay, CNN, Atlanta. Well, former Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows now facing his first indictment related to the 2020 election. What that could say about this case? and others. That's coming up next. Former President Trump now facing a total of 91 criminal charges in four different cases in Georgia, Florida, New York, and Washington, D.C. You see the charges scrolling on the screen right now. The newest charges related to election subversion in the Atlanta area the former president has until next Friday to turn himself in. Remember, the first Republican primary debate is next Wednesday. 
Joining us now, Republican strategist and former RNC communications director Doug High, CNN political analyst, White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour, Laura Brown Lopez, and former advisor to President Clinton, Paul Begala. Well, good morning, guys. Next week's going to be a big week, Doug. There's a <laughs> Republican debate that Trump may or may not participate in, and then he and 18 other folks indicted in Georgia have to turn themselves in on these charges. But Trump is running on this. Is this one going to be any different? Because all of the others seem to have not hurt his support, maybe bolstered it. Yeah, the reality is, uh, Poppy, in the short term, no, this won't be any different. And the reason for that is twofold. One, every time that Donald Trump has been invited and I, uh, indicted, and I'll say this is a bizarre statement, it, it bolsters Donald Trump because it reinforces his core argument. Typically, in politics, when you're indicted, you get in any legal trouble, your campaign is over. For Donald Trump... It reinforces his core message that the system is rigged, that it's against, rigged against you, it's rigged against me, it's rigged against everybody. And bizarrely, this shores up his message. Two, when he's been indicted, each time most of his opponents have not only not gone after Donald Trump, which in any other campaign you would do, they back up Donald Trump. They say, this is a two-tiered system of justice. So when your own opponents, the people running against you, fail to criticize you, that bolsters you as well. The debate, therefore, is going to be interesting because this case is different, and we'll see if it makes Republican candidates who are running against Donald Trump run against him, move from running against him in theory to in practice, and use this to do what they would do against any other opponent in any other race, and that's criticize him. I mean, so few have. Asa Hutchinson put out a statement last night right. saying, essentially, I've prosecuted people under RICO statutes like this, et cetera, but so so few will go after him. Including mm -hmm. the number two guy who's had a rough couple of months, the mm -hmm. governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Laura, Doug kind of captures the, the point I've been fixated on, not just this morning, but I think over the course uh, of several months now. And keep in mind, over the course of four months, Trump has been indicted four different times in four different places. But Peter, our mutual pal, Peter Baker, the New York Times, has a great piece this morning where he really kind of captures it. It says, quote, the nation once recoiled at presidential candidates caught driving under the influence or swiping lines in a speech without credit. Now one of the two major parties has not ruled out a front runner charged with conspiring to subvert democracy, endangering national security, obstructing justice, and falsifying records of hush money to a pornographic film star. Is it because it's just so much that everybody has tuned out and or is numb? Or is it, which I think Doug's point is very smart on this, that this just kind of dovetails perfectly into what has been Trump's message from the beginning and has served as Teflon to some point? I think when we're looking at the primary, Doug's point totally stands, which is that the GOP base is behind the former president. Uh, I would argue a majority of the Republican establishment is behind the former president, or at least will not say anything and confront him directly. Uh, they will do it privately to us many times, but not publicly and directly to make a break from the former president. But when we look at the general election, I think it is having an impact, because I was just talking to a Republican uh registered Republican voter in Arizona, a swing state, another state that is actually looking into a fake elector scheme carried out by Trump in 2020. And that Republican voter had voted Republican their entire life, told me they voted for Joe Biden in 2020. One of those independent leaning, you know, uh, moderate Republicans who broke for Biden 
in that swing state last go around. And I checked in to see if they had soured on President Biden and were leaning back the Republican way, given the cast of uh, these candidates that that this voter has to choose from. And they said no. And it was because of what Doug is saying, which is that none of the other Republicans that potentially have a shot of taking out the former president are actually confronting him on the democracy issue and on all of the indictments. And so he said there was no one there that he felt he could vote for. Um, Control room, I don't know if we have the Hillary Clinton sound. If we do, let's see if we can get it up for, for Paul's. Paul, because I just think you obviously were a former advisor to Bill Clinton. Um, Hillary Clinton talked about this. We'll play it in just a moment. But Joe Biden, the president, isn't, can't really talk about this because it's this Justice Department that is at the helm of the federal probes. But Hillary Clinton did weigh in. Here she was. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to believe. I, I don't feel any satisfaction. I feel great, uh, you know, just just great profound sadness that uh, we have a former president who has been indicted uh, for so many uh, charges that went right to the heart of whether or not our democracy would survive. Just your thoughts on this, because we're not going to hear that from Joe Biden. Yeah, I I. I Look, I, I think Hillary should have won. She lost fair and square uh, by, by the Electoral College. Um, but it was pretty remarkable uh, to, to see that because Democrats in the main are not talking about this, yeah. uh, because the president especially cannot, must not, will not talk about this. But I think that's very smart. Biden has to stay out of it. You know, the, the, the challenge, I think Laura hit it exactly on the head. I could have slept in. She, she had exactly the point I was trying to make. <laughs> As she is, often does. We keep obsessing. Oh, she's great. Uh, I hope she's not listening. Uh, We often look at how bulletproof Trump's base is, right? Oh, why doesn't this crack his base? Why doesn't this crack? That's the wrong question. Trump keeps deepening support of that same minority of Americans. It's not the majority. We we shouldn't ask, does this deepen his support? We should ask, does it broaden it? Right. He, Donald Trump uh, lost a popular vote to my friend Hillary, lost a popular vote to Joe Biden. Not a single day of his presidency did he have a majority of support in America. If he wants to get back to the White House, he can get to 45 nationally very easily because Lincoln was right. You can fool some of the people all of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Right. And, and I think that which makes him unbeatable in the Republican primary may make him unelectable in the general election. Laura, to that point, I think this is the thing that I've, this is like the fifth thing I've said I've been fixated on. Uh, I fixate on a lot of things related to a lot of things. Sorry. Um, but you talk to White House officials. You talk to Biden campaign officials. This Paul's point, I think, is to some degree the theory of the case, right? That, look, we get it. This is where the Republican Party is. This is where the Republican base is. When you have these issues, which Biden's not going to talk about, but outside groups probably will, and then you add into them the Roe versus Wade issue, which has been dramatically moving in Democratic favor on the state level over and over and over again, those voters that you're talking about, like in Arizona, aren't going to all of a sudden shift back to Trump if he's the nominee. And yet, Joe Biden remains tied or within the margin of error with Donald Trump in every poll. Why? Well, the the White House explanation or the Biden campaign explanation is because of the fact that he's just not in the news as much right now. And they're essentially letting Republicans uh, argue amongst themselves and let 
the indictments against the former president just take up all of the airspace because they think that ultimately that will help the president when he starts fully campaigning come next year. So uh, that's their explanation. I, I mean, We've seen, though, as we get closer to the election time, that ultimately that enthusiasm gap can shrink and that Democrats appear very galvanized around those issues that you just laid out, Phil. They expect them to come home. They do eventually. Thank you you very much to all of you. Donald Trump and the 18 others just indicted in Georgia have 10 days to turn themselves in. More of our breaking news coverage right ahead. And we'll speak live with someone who testified before the grand jury right before the indictments. CNN contributor, former Republican Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, joins us. Coming up. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Forty-fifth president of the United States indicted on state charges stemming from his and others' efforts to overturn Joe Biden's election win in the state of Georgia. I make decisions in this office based on the facts and the law. We look at the facts, we look at the law, and we bring charges. She didn't throw the book at him. She threw the library. Now having another indictment for him questioning the integrity of this country's elections, that is what we're doing to a president that served this country. The governor of Georgia, I guess, can't pardon. I don't know how you get out of this. Do I intend to try the 19 defendants in this indictment together? Yes. The calendar is getting quite crowded with all of the possible trials, both criminal and civil, that the former president is facing. This case has a couple of twists on advice of counsel. You see some of the lawyers on whose advice he relied indicted. This is disgraceful. It is an abuse of power by angry Democrats who have decided the rule of law doesn't matter to them anymore. It's much bigger than Watergate. It goes to the very foundation of democracy. This is very different and much more serious and much more troubling. Are just waking up this morning. We're glad you're with us and you're waking up to significant historic news. I know you've heard that a lot over the past four months, but it is true. Donald Trump has been indicted again, this on felony charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in the state of Georgia. And he has 18 co-defendants who have also been charged. They include some of the most Prominent names in Trump world, like Rudy Giuliani, former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, they are all facing RICO, racketeering charges, charges that were typically used to prosecute mafia bosses and gang leaders. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has ordered Trump and his alleged co-conspirators to turn themselves in and surrender voluntarily by next Friday. Rather than abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, The defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. Prosecutors laid out the sweeping conspiracy in a 98-page indictment. It included Trump pressuring state officials to find votes after he lost to Joe Biden, the creation of fake electors to falsely declare Trump the winner in Georgia, and the illegal breaching of voting equipment by Trump operatives to look for voter fraud. Now, this is Trump's fourth criminal indictment in just a little more than four months. And when you add up all of the charges from the special counsel's classified documents probe in the January 6th investigation, plus the Stormy Daniels hush money case in Manhattan, Trump is now facing 91 total charges as he is the Republican frontrunner for 2024. We have team coverage all morning long. Our Nick Valencia is live outside the Fulton County Courthouse and CNN political commentator and former Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, is standing by in Atlanta. He testified before the grand jury yesterday, just hours before the indictment came down. 
We also have our legal and political experts standing by, but let's start this hour with our Nick Valencia. He is live at the courthouse. And Nick, Trump is claiming that this is all politically motivated. And he has been in explosive rhetoric leading up to this indictment. He had said this was politically motivated. He went so far as to call Fonnie Willis a racist. Now, Fonnie Willis charging him with 13 counts among a slew of charges he is facing. Racketeering charge, which is more typically reserved for mob bosses and gangsters. But now Fonnie Willis says Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants must turn themselves in here in Atlanta by August 25th. A Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment. The 98-page indictment lists 41 felony counts against former President Trump and 18 co-defendants to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election results, accusing them of, quote, unlawfully conspired and endeavored to conduct and participate in a criminal enterprise. Trump charged with 13 counts in the indictment. Every individual charged in the indictment is charged with one count of violating Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act through participation in a criminal enterprise in Fulton County, Georgia, and elsewhere to accomplish the illegal goal of allowing Donald J. Trump to seize the presidential term of office beginning on January 20th, 21. The indictment also included an additional 30 unindicted co-conspirators in addition to the charged defendants. In a statement, Trump's attorneys calling the grand jury presentation, quote, one-sided and the events of Monday, quote, shocking and absurd. Ohio Rep Jim Jordan, a Trump ally, tweeting out, he did nothing wrong. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying, justice should be blind. But Biden has weaponized government against his leading political opponent to interfere in the 2024 election. But uh, it was it was a, a very uh, intense uh, you know, meeting. Jeff Duncan, CNN contributor and former Georgia lieutenant governor on his testimony before an Atlanta grand jury. I can tell you that there was the highest level of attention in that room uh, from folks with the district attorney's office to through the jurors. It was just an extremely uh, intense uh, period of time, and uh, everybody was prepared. The indictment stemmed from a two-and-a-half-year criminal investigation into Trump's alleged interference in the 2020 Georgia presidential election, including his call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I just want to find 11,780 votes. To the fake electors who convened to cast illegitimate votes for Trump, the investigation also accuses multiple defendants of harassment of election workers and a voting systems breach in rural Coffee County. I want to try him and be respectful for our sovereign states. And while Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis says she intends to try the 19 defendants together, it's up to the judge on when the trial will proceed. We do want to move this case along, and so we will be asking for a proposed order that occurs a trial date within the next six months. This was more than just the infamous call that Trump made to Georgia's Secretary of State after he lost the 2020 election in which he pressured him to find more votes. This is about a slate of fake electors that tried to subvert the Electoral College and say that Trump won Georgia when he really lost to Joe Biden. 
And this is really about an overall pressure campaign on Georgia lawmakers and Fulton County election workers to overturn the results here after the 2020 election. Fonnie Willis, we were told initially, would take up to two days to present her case to the grand jury. Instead, they spent all day making their case to the grand jury, with the end result being Donald Trump indicted yet again. Poppy, Phil. All right, Nick Valencia, live for us in Atlanta. Thanks so much. And joining us now, you saw him in Nick's piece. He's someone who testified before that grand jury, just hours before the indictment was returned. CNN contributor and former Republican lieutenant governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan. Uh, Jeff, I appreciate your time this morning. First off, the 98-page indictment, uh, it's now out. You've seen it. Was there anything in there that either surprised you or looked off base from your personal experience throughout this process and this investigation? Yeah, my early assessment is that there's really no names on there that surprise me and there's no scenarios that surprise me, right? And that might come into contrast to Republicans all over the country, but this this was what we were talking against during the, the immediate days and months after the 2020 election cycle. This just, the math just didn't add up, right? You you couldn't take a tweet and turn it into a factual scenario. And, and so, no, nothing really surprised me that jumped off the page. I want our viewers to hear something you said last night. I believe this is when you walked out of the courthouse about what you hope America takes from this. Here you were. My hope is that Americans believe us. My hope is that Republicans believe us, uh, that this election was fair and legal. And uh, I certainly think this is a pivot point for us. Uh, you know, as a Republican that cares about the future of this country, this is our moment to, to, to hit the reset button. Your hope is not echoed by a vast majority of Republicans who still say in polling that they believe that uh, Biden didn't legitimately win the election. And, and it's not something shared by most of the people running against Trump. But you think this one changes things? Yeah, this is certainly carries an even bigger weight than the other ones. I mean, as if a federal indictment doesn't carry weight or other states' indictments, but but certainly this added to it. But, you know what, Poppy, I, I'm going to be critical of, of my party. I'm going to be critical of those that are running for president in my party. I'm going to be critical of governors and senators. They know the right thing to do here. The right thing to do is to call Donald Trump out for lying, misleading us, and taking our Republican Party straight to the ditch. That's what's happened here. And until we all want to stand up and speak as loudly and clearly as we possibly can, that the Republican Party needs to use this as a pivot point to hit the reset button, to go to a GOP 2.0 that really gets us back to talking about the policies. If 2024 is about the issues, if it's just strictly about the issues and not about Donald Trump, we will beat the brakes off Joe Biden. He's got no, no positive record on the border, national security, public safety. These are issues that we can take him to the floor with. But if we just make it about Donald Trump, we're going to continue to be embarrassed. And our campaign speeches in the Republican Party are going to be from courthouse steps every mm. single day. Um, we can do better. We should do better. And this needs to be the wake up call. And, and I, I've certainly been, been vocal about this. We need to have everybody running for president stand up together, not because their consultants tell them it makes sense today, not because it, it doesn't feel like a short term sugar high, but get up there and tell Donald Trump to get out of this race for the good of the party and for the good of the country. Jeff, I think to that point, and, and credit for consistency, you've said that after, I think this is now at least the third indictment that you've said very similar things about it's time to turn the page. It's time to get away from this. It's time to not uh, always be defending or rallying around somebody who's been consistently indicted. And yet the former president's poll numbers continually seem to go up in moments like this. He's able to frame, particularly in a primary, 
electorate, these as political attacks uh, by Democrats. To that point, uh, did you get any sense that Fonnie Willis and your interactions with her during this process or her team was politically motivated? I think the former president called her a rabid partisan or that the grand jury itself was out to intentionally get the former president. Look, that's Donald Trump's game. Every time he gets put in a corner, he 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 fights like like a, a kid, right? He just he calls names. There's no there's no merits behind it. I, I certainly didn't encounter any of that. It was a very professional process, a very well-informed district attorney's office, a very well-informed jury uh, that asked very in, uh, intellectual questions throughout the process. Uh, but look, when, when when leaders of your party are telling you that something's true, I guess it's just inherently natural to believe them. And so as long as our party leaders, as long as Kevin McCarthy and others and, and these candidates for president, I mean, you, you look at Ron DeSantis, he's literally fired almost everybody in his campaign. If he wants to really turn the tide on where this thing's headed, just tell Donald Trump that he's wrong, he lied, and he needs to get out of the race. Let's watch the deflection in the numbers at that point. Uh, so because this, as long as this proceeds as a state case and doesn't move to be federal, which I don't think they're going to have success in, in trying to move it if they do, um, in Georgia, the governor can't pardon someone, right? So if Trump were convicted, the governor couldn't. It would have to go to a board of parole that has that power. Some conservatives in your state and outside the state are pushing for the law to be changed. It would give the governor, Brian Kemp, the ability to pardon. Do you think that that would be successful at all? And should Kemp have that power? Could you even see him utilizing it in that way? I mean, he's someone who upheld the results in Georgia. Look, I, I think our most important uh, duty right now as Georgians is to let the, the judicial system play out as it, as it, uh, as it sees fit, as, as the process is supposed to work, not to create all kinds of workarounds. I mean, look, that's really where we got with this whole mess to start mm -hmm. with, with the, mm -hmm. with the election debacle, right? It was, it was solutions in search of problems every, every minute of every day. Let's let the judicial system play out. If Donald Trump did nothing wrong, if these co-conspirators did nothing wrong, uh, then, then great. They're going to have their opportunity to share their story, and it should be abundantly clear that they deserve to just be scot-free. Uh, my, my, my instincts tell me that there's going to be a different outcome. Jeff, for people who are waking up this morning and seeing this and saying, all right, 91 uh, charges at this point, it's the fourth indictment. I, I don't know why I need to necessarily pay attention to this. Can you tell them what your personal experience was like, both in testifying uh, but also in being attacked, albeit with the misspelled first name, uh, by the former president of the United States. Yeah, I found out yesterday uh, when I walked into the, to the kitchen in the morning and my, one of my sons said, uh, Dad, the former president misspelled your name, uh, which I thought was funny. It's Jeff with a G, right? Uh, look, my personal experience, this, this, is, this has been going on for two and a half years for me and my family. Uh, we didn't get into politics because we wanted power. We wanted to put policy over politics. That was our campaign motto when I ran for lieutenant governor, and that's certainly how I govern. Uh, if you put the policy over the politics here, uh, I think we're going to have a much better outcome. Um, it's, it's, it's tough that we have to go through these growing pains, but look, we're either going to learn from this or we're going to lose from this. I hope we're one of those uh, at that point in time for the Republican Party where we learn from this. That is a surreal breakfast kitchen conversation with your child. I have to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, just just an just an average day at the Duncan's house, right? Yeah, just, no, you know, I mean well. honestly, over the last two years, not necessarily wrong. Uh, former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, uh, appreciate your time as always, sir. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jeff. All right. Yeah, and congrats, Phil, on the on the uh, permanent role. Right, Thanks, Jeff. I We're appreciate. So happy it. to have Thank him you. here.
All right, there are some other big names in this indictment. 18 people listed in this outside of Trump. Some of the names you'll know, Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani. We've got more on the charges, including the RICO law being used. When our special live coverage continues, stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. You're looking at a full list of charges against former President Donald Trump from all four of his indictments over the last four months. These are four different cases in Georgia, Florida, New York, and Washington, D.C. The 13 counts against him in Georgia this indictment brought last night bring his total to 91. 91 counts against a former president and current frontrunner, we should note, for the Republican presidential nomination. With us, CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin back with us. Um, Michael, let me just begin with your reaction to what we just heard there from uh, from Jeff Duncan, who was a lieutenant governor uh, during the time that all of this was going on, all these shenanigans. He obviously presided over the Senate when there were all these efforts to get, uh, you know, f- through the fake elector scheme. And now a witness to Fonnie Willis, who pra- a Republican who praised the entire process that he was a part of here. Your thoughts? Well, he's standing up for what he believes to be the truth of the matter, which is that there was an organized group of people, an enterprise as charged in the indictment, who were trying to illegally upset the results of the election. And he feels that truth matters more than party. And therefore, he's going to say, this is what I saw. This is what I was asked to do or heard others being asked to do. And it's just not acceptable. It's not acceptable sort of in a constitutional sense. It's also at a very partisan level, not acceptable for the Republican Party to tolerate this sort of behavior. So he really is, in some sense, exercising a profile in courage within the Republican Party because you really are punished within the Republican Party for not towing the Trump line. And so good for him. You know, I think that more people like him are needed in politics, and I'm happy to have him. We don't agree on very much politically, but we do agree on the importance of mm. truth-telling and integrity. Joey, uh, to some degree, you almost want to pause for a minute, and you know, we show the 91 charges. That's since April 1st yeah. of 2023. Yeah. On April 1st, Donald Trump and no president in the history of the United States have been charged with a felony. A little more than four months later... He's now charged 91 times in four different places by different entities, three different entities, the special counsel, the New York DA, and the the Fulton County DA. This case specifically, part of the issue, I feel, given the scale, is people just shut it out, right? I I can't follow all this. It's such a mess. We're rolling the screen. It could probably take the next 30 minutes to go through all those cases. This case, these 98 pages, why does it matter? Does it carry weight? Yeah. So, Phil, it's breathtaking, right? Because we went from an historic place to an even more historic place, first indictment, Manhattan, even more historic place, classified documents, even more historic place, you know, as it relates to the January 6th issue. And now here we are again. Here we go again. You know, I think, first of all, in response to your question, Phil, you know, it's sort of like people have stripes. If you're a Republican, this is all nonsense. It's political. It's our system coming after us. Uh, you know, I think it's time to call it for what it is, right? And I think that what I'm reading is an indictment which is very specific, 
which has allegations which are really uh, just essentially horrifying. You look at this issue of a criminal enterprise, as we talked about. You look at the pattern acts which talk about that criminal enterprise with mm -hmm. respect to really just overturning this election, soliciting people to violate their oaths of office, breaking into computer systems, intimidating witnesses. The list goes on and on. And then you look, because we've gotten to this free speech issue, and the issue is, oh, it's free speech. I could say whatever you want. But one of the interesting things the indictment talks about many times are these overt acts. Now, let's talk about that just for one minute. When you have a conspiracy, which are a number of people who enter into agreement, two or more, right, to break the law, what happens is it's not only the speech. We could talk about anything. It's the action which translates the speech into conduct. And there are, what, 160-something acts that it lists that move it from, hey, let's just talk about this, to let's get it done. And so it's hard to argue with regard to the specificity of this indictment, with regard to what the district attorney did in matching the facts to the laws that were broken, to say that this is just a political enterprise, particularly when you had a special grand jury of 75 witnesses that met from May of 22 to January of 2023, and then you had an action grand jury who could issue an indictment, issue the indictments. It's part of our process. It's really a sad thing to see, but this is our reality. We all, people often can forget you don't even need to carry out all of the acts for, for a conspiracy. It just is the conspiring that is, that is the crime. Let's listen to Sarah Murray, our colleague, questioning Fonnie Willis last night. Have you had any contact with the special counsel about overlap between these cases? And do you intend to try all of these defendants together? Do I intend to try the 19 defendants in this indictment together? Yes. Yes. And have you had any contact with the special counsel about the overlap between this indictment and the federal indictment? I'm not going to discuss our investigation at this time. That's interesting, Michael Zeldin. Also, what makes this case different uh, is that RICO has a mandatory minimum. Prison, mandatory minimum prison time if there's a conviction. That's not the case in the other probes. Exactly right. There is a mandatory minimum. It's a five-year mandatory minimum with a maximum of 20 years. And talking about pardons, you have to serve your term and be completing all of your probationary obligations before you're even eligible to request a pardon. So not only does... The president of the United States have nothing to do with this, nor the governor of Georgia have anything to do with this. It's an independent board, but you've got to wait five years after the completion of your sentence before you can even apply. So the consequences here for anyone who's convicted of RICO is very, very serious, and which is why I believe that there will be a lot of people running into Fannie Willis's offices once they get lawyers and they read this indictment to try to work out deals to something less than a RICO charge, something that doesn't carry a mandatory minimum. And it may require some testimony on their part, but they've got to get out from under this RICO charge and the mandatory minimum requirements. Joey, that's a great point because, you know, the Sarah Murray's question, by the way, she'd done our show at 6 a.m. yesterday and was still coherent at that hour with those two very important questions, which is remarkable to me. Um, but bringing 19 together, trying to try them together, when you use RICO, people automatically think of the mafia, people automatically think of gangs, people will automatically think of people flipping on other people. Is that the goal here? Is that the plan? Is that what the former president needs to be worried about? So you know what, Phil? They may or may not need it. I mean, the evidence that I'm reading, and again, these are allegations. It's an indictment. It's important to note that a grand jury assesses this information. They establish not proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, whether there's reasonable 
cause to believe a crime was committed and the subjects of the indictment committed it. Different standard. But as I read it, Phil, I mean, there's some pretty specific information in here with respect to what people have done in terms of perjury, in terms of, again, soliciting people to violate their oaths of office and breaking into computer systems. Why is that relevant? Because generally when you're looking for people to flip, you're looking as a prosecutor, right, to garner the evidence you need to move forward successfully in your prosecution. And so you lose leverage when the prosecution already has the information. What's important to me, really, because of the consequences here, we know about the whole issue of the pardon, right? We just spoke to that issue, is whether this goes first in time. Maybe they speak with each other, all the prosecutors, and this is a prosecution that takes somewhat of priority. Yeah, uh, to take a national security term, deconfliction, I think, to some degree, is going to be important here, given 91 charges for different entities. Um, Joey Jackson, Michael Zeldin, guys, thanks so much. Witch hunt, Politically motivated, former President Trump, very familiar reactions to his now fourth indictment. A look inside the Trump team strategy that's ahead. Well, former President Donald Trump is blasting his fourth criminal indictment as, quote, politically inspired election interference. He and 18 others are now facing charges related to efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. In an interview with Fox News Digital late last night, he said the indictment was, quote, tailored for placement right smack in the middle of his political campaign. CNN's Elena Treen is live in Washington this morning. Uh, Elena, I was watching your reporting come through throughout just about every hour last night of where the Trump team was, what they were planning on, what they were waiting for. Now that this has happened, now that the 98 pages are out, what are they doing behind the scenes? Right. Well, they've had to deal with this three times before. They have a playbook that they have used uh, with the previous indictments that Donald Trump has faced, and they think it's working. And so they're going to continue to use that, I'm told. And I did. I spoke with many of Donald Trump's advisors, both in the lead up to that indictment dropping yesterday and after. And they were very prepared. They had been preparing pre-written statements. They had been uh, talking to his surrogates and allies, preparing them with talking points and uh, really readying them for when potential charges were filed. And then, of course, once we saw the indictment drop, we saw Donald Trump's allies immediately take to Twitter, uh, go on you know, span the airwaves and defend him. People like Jim Jordan, who said that he did nothing wrong. People like House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who uh, argued that this was a witch hunt and that uh, the President Biden has been weaponized um, against Donald Trump. Um, and the president himself, the former president, Donald Trump, also uh, in a long winding uh, interview with Fox News yesterday, also addressed these charges. He said, quote, this politically inspired indictment, which could have been brought close to three years ago, was tailored for placement right smack in the middle of my political campaign, where I'm leading all Republicans by a lot and beating Joe Biden soundly in almost all polls. And again, Poppy and Phil, we have seen this before. Donald Trump uh, wants to message this on his own terms. He wants to own the narrative here. And I think you're going to continue to see him talking about this both on True Social, uh, but in additional media interviews uh, in light of these new charges. It's interesting. A few days ago, Trump said uh, all he needed was, quote, one more indictment to close out the election. Next week, he may or may not get on the debate stage for the first Republican debate, two days before he is set to meet the deadline to turn himself in in this case. Right. It's just fascinating how politically he'll continue to use this. No, that's exactly right. And I do think that 
you know, his campaign very much does see the political advantages, at least in the short term, of these charges. Of course, Donald Trump does not want to be indicted. This is a massive legal headache. Uh, he recognizes, as is his team, that this is going to uh, largely create problems for his campaign, at least from, you know, a scheduling and logistics mm-hmm. standpoint, but also potentially, you know, as they look ahead to not just with primary voters, but if they are able to win the nomination, that's fiery off. Um, but if he is, like, how would this play in a general election? They're very worried about that. But in the short term, they do see the benefits. You'll see them continue to push this on fundraising, continue to talk about it. Um, and I do think that eventually, if Donald Trump does appear in person for a court appearance, again, that's still premature as well. I think you'll see him give remarks and try to message on this as well after that. Uh, it's, a, it's a great point. You've had great reporting uh, throughout the course of these four indictments. Uh, that's how they raise money at this point yeah. as well. Those public appearances to the extent he can speak because they need money, as we've seen with your reporting and the FEC filings. Elena Treen, thanks so much. So unlike the federal cases that Donald Trump is currently fighting, this one in Georgia will likely be televised. That's right. It'll be on camera. How cameras in the courtroom could play politically for the former president. Welcome back. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis says the former president and his co-defendants must surrender by August 25th. That is a week from Friday. The former president could surrender any time before that, including, I suppose, on August 23rd, which is, by the way, the first Republican debate. Let's talk about the politics of all of this. CNN political analyst, White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour, Laura Brown-Lopez is with us, Republican strategist and former RNC communications director Doug High joins us, along with former advisor to President Clinton, Paul Gallo. Good morning to you all. Gosh, Laura, what a week. What a week next week's going to be. And as we head into this, um, whenever Trump decides to turn himself in, at least that entrance, et cetera, will be on camera. But everything that happens in the courtroom, because this is a state case, including the trial, will be on camera. It's not the case for the two federal ones. That's right. And uh, we can probably expect that former President Trump is going to use the fact that it is on camera to his advantage and that uh, this could certainly just simply help him in the primary uh, in the primary. Now, uh, assuming that that starts around the time that uh, D.A. Fonnie Willis said that she hopes that a trial date is set, which is within the next six months, that could land around uh, the Iowa caucus or around the other early Mm -hmm. states when they start voting uh, in February. And ultimately, as we've seen time and time again with the last three indictments that Uh, When Trump goes into the courtroom, when he's uh, responding to these indictments, the GOP, the GOP base rallies around him. Paul, I want to read uh, a part of Peter Baker's great analysis story today, which I think gets at the idea of Mm -hmm. Trump is able to somehow spin this to his advantage uh, on the primary side, which says in part, so the country must brace itself for what will surely be described as the trial of the century, which will be followed by the next trial of the century and then the next and then the next. And you chuckle for a moment when you read it, and then you think, oh, well, no, that's actually accurate, and there is no precedent for any of these trials of the century. And I think my question, and probably was getting at this, the idea of having this on camera, the idea of having someone like Ruby Freeman testify, we saw it from the January 6th committee, it still seems to get lost overall. Can that change minds, not core base supporters, but more broadly? I think it can. It can among those independents that Trump has to get in order to get 
50 percent in order to get back to the White House. First off, can I just say it's an outrage that the federal courts won't have cameras in them? I mean, can you, the founders wrote into the Constitution that trials have to be in public. If we that meant that back then that pencil press could come in, that's all we had. It's insane that the federal courts don't let cameras in. This is these are our employees. These are our courtrooms. So I'm sorry to get on my soapbox there. <laughs> the difference here, though, is Donald Trump has spent more end on the business, uh, more time on the business end of a camera than probably even more than Ronald Reagan, than any politician are like. He knows how to perform on camera. The difference is on his TV show, at his rallies, he's in charge. In this trial, the judge is going to be in charge. The jury the, the, and the viewers, we don't see anything that that judge doesn't want to let in. And I think that could really be frustrating for Trump. He's a, he's a guy who likes to control things. Uh, and I, I think it actually might not work to his advantage. I, I think he's far better suited, by the way, skipping the debate uh, on Wednesday next week and showing up at the courthouse to be arraigned. And he'll show everybody that the, the ratings for a five-minute statement at his courthouse will be 100 times higher than all of the non-Trump Lilliputians debating. Uh, so I, I think it's nuts for him to debate. I think he should just show up, uh, be arraigned, and then have a media circus. Doug, you're a Republican strategist. Is yeah. Paul right? Is the Democrat, the Democratic strategist right? Giving, about giving what the political advice to Donald Trump. Gala advising the Trump campaign. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> Weird unpaid, morning. Unpaid advisor. How about that? <laughs> Ultimately, I, I do think he's right. And part of that is, you know, we, we've seen so often that Republicans not just are shy to be critical of Trump, but they actually shore up his message. And, you know, Phil, you're an old ball player. I'm, I'm reminded of what Yogi Berra once said, that when you come to a fork in the road, you take it. Well, if you're a Republican running against Donald Trump, you have four forks in the road right now, or, or maybe 91 forks. This it would be the time to take one of those forks and use it. We'll ultimately see if, if they do that or not. But I'm reminded of uh, Star Wars and the lesson that it taught us that ultimately Luke Skywalker had to confront Darth Vader. He couldn't sit back and hope that the Force or Han Solo would take care of it for him. And ultimately what we've seen with these Republicans who are running against Trump more in theory than in practice is that they are depending on one thing that in politics you typically say, and Donald Trump is obviously atypical, hope is not a strategy. And so we'll find out next Wednesday as to whether or not anything's going to be different or not. I just say, hi, just called me old. I just almost and then said, he don't just, call and then, and then he went for the Star Wars <laughs> reference, dating himself. So yeah. I want to, I, I just want to put all that on the record. Touche. Laura, what? Can, can I give some free advice now to <laughs> Trump's opponents? Yes, um, but then Laura, it, go ahead. That is this. I, I gave Trump advice. Uh, the, the killer argument against Trump is not, certainly not, he's a martyr, because then, the, and it's also not, he's a crook. The killer argument against him is he's in it for himself. He's distracted. He's only concerned about his own hide, not about yours. Right. I think that's the killer argument mm -hmm. is when's the last time Trump said anything about immigration yeah. well, or all the things Lieutenant Governor Duncan was talking about in his interview with you, Poppy? When's the last time he talked about borders, crime, jobs, health care, the economy, mm -hmm. China, Russia? Nothing. And, and so I think that's if I'm in the Republican debate, I say Trump is like. Pavarotti warming up to the opera. He just me, 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 me. I'm going to be focused on you, you, you. Oh my goodness. Yogi my Berra, Star Wars, Pavarotti. Laura, <laughs> last word. I mean, look, I think that uh, one of the big things that uh, is going to ultimately impact this election is clearly that uh, the democracy argument is something that Democrats are seeing as being salient. The 
threats to democracy argument. And so that is something that I think we can expect them. In addition to we've talked about abortion and all the other things that Paul laid out. But the camp Biden's campaign sees the threats to democracy and their ability to still make that argument, even while President Biden is certainly not going to talk about the specifics of the cases and the specifics of the indictments against Trump. But they are going to continue to make that argument, which we saw in 2020 uh, and which we saw him make after the January 6th insurrection. I have a Pagliacci reference, but I won't no. use it. It's too no. early in the morning. Somebody cut off Doug's go. mic immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, congratulations Thanks. on the new gig, Phil. Aww. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. All right, well, Fulton County's Fonnie Willis is taking on the biggest case of her career. Next, we're going to be joined by a mentor of hers. Gwen Keyes Fleming is also former district attorney next door in neighboring DeKalb County, Georgia. Her reaction to these charges and the direction she thinks this could go. Also, CNN on the ground in Hawaii as the community cleans up from the massive deadly wildfires and investigates what happened. How did this all go so terribly wrong and so fast? But this right here is a crime scene. And so what people don't understand is the government has to do due diligence before they start moving in. So it's a, a humanitarian response in the uh, middle of an, a working crime scene. Exactly. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I make decisions in this office based on the facts and the law. Um, the law is completely nonpartisan. That's how decisions are made in every case. We look at the facts, we look at the law, and we bring charges. So President Trump has slammed the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, throughout this process, accusing her of partisan bias. And while his critiques are largely unsupported, Willis did make a misstep last year when she hosted a fundraiser for a Democratic candidate running for Georgia's lieutenant governor. Problem was that candidate was running against Republican candidate Burt Jones, who was one of the 16 fake electors in Georgia, which made him a potential target in Willis's investigation. A Georgia judge then blocked Willis from pursuing an investigation of Jones after his attorneys argued her political actions should disqualify her from doing that. That judge, Robert McBurney, called the fundraiser a, quote, what are you thinking moment and said, quote, the optics are horrific. But I should note that same judge has also praised Willis's handling of this investigation. In a ruling last week, he said, quote, the district attorney's office has been doing a fairly routine and legally unobjectionable job of public relations in a case that is anything but routine. Joining us now is Gwen Keyes Fleming. She's a former district attorney in neighboring DeKalb County, considers herself one of Fonnie Willis's mentors. Gwen, thanks so much for taking the time. And I think this gets it a point, you know, there's been about 300 profiles written of Fonnie Willis over the course of the last two <laughs> years. And I think it becomes very easy to, to slate her into some hyperbolic category or another. Tell people, as a district attorney, who Fonnie Willis is and this case particularly, what it means. Sure. Well, uh, Fonnie is a prosecutor's prosecutor. She's tough. She knows the law. She <clears throat> follows the law. She's not going to be distracted either by politics, uh, the threats that she has gotten, her team has gotten, uh, any of the distractions of the media. She's focused, she and her team. And what they are looking to do is 
understand whether uh, they have the evidence to move forward. They've made that preliminary decision. Obviously, the grand jurors agreed. And so now they'll go about the business of trying the case. And again, I think as this goes forward, you'll see that she's the consummate professional. Uh, she's very persuasive uh, in the courtroom as well as outside the courtroom. She's earned the trust of the residents of Fulton County, and now she's going to go forward in their name to hold anybody accountable that may have violated the law within her jurisdiction. How would you describe her as, uh, as a litigator, as a traveler? How, how would you describe her as cross-examining witnesses, for example? She's very tough. Uh, it, it's uh, mastery in the courtroom, if, if I could be so, I guess, hyperbolic. Uh, but she's one, again, she studies hard. She studies well. She knows the law. Uh, she knows her case. So she's able to easily cross-examine witnesses, lure them down various paths, get them to commit to things that help her case or uh, demonstrate their lack of credibility. I think one of the things, too, is she's very familiar with the bench in Fulton County. She has practiced there as an assistant DA for years. So she knows each judge's personality and uh, how to be successful in that particular courtroom, Judge McAfee's courtroom, ultimately. Uh, so again, all of those things come into play when you are looking to see just how good a prosecutor is. Law and facts are one thing. Presence and understanding of the audience, whether it's the judge and or the jury, is another. And Fani has both. Uh, Fani Willis has said that she's a fan of the RICO statute, George's RICO statute. She's utilized it in going after gangs. She's utilizing it again here. You're a DA in a neighboring county in the state of Georgia. Why? Tell people why this is an effective statute that Fani Willis would want to utilize here. So the great thing about Georgia's RICO statute, it's a fantastic tool for prosecutors because it lets us, lets them tell the jurors the whole story. Very often, if you have a multi-defendant case, sometimes you can get into facts as it relates to one defendant. Sometimes defense attorneys will try to file motions in limine or other uh motions to limit testimony of other actors so it doesn't come back on their client. A RICO statute lets you put all of that under one umbrella. And so as you look at the way the indictment is laid out, uh, it not only lists several predicate crimes to establish that pattern of racketeering, but it also talks about different acts that were in furtherance of uh, the racketeering charges or in furtherance of protecting the enterprise. And it's those other facts that lets prosecutors fill in the gap mm -hmm. and make this a, a storytelling exercise for the grand, for the jurors. I want to ask you about Trump's uh, Atlanta-based defense counsel. You have defense lawyer Drew Finling, who's really well known for, I mean, he's called the magician by some there for his successful defense of famous clients, including Cardi B, Migos, Gucci Mane, also his colleague in all of this, Jennifer Little. What should people know about them as defense counsel? 
I mean, these are excellent counsel. Jennifer and I used to work together when uh, we were both prosecutors, uh, and Drew has been a formidable opponent of mine and other colleagues for years. So uh, what you will see, I have no doubt, will be an effective defense strategy once they've had the opportunity to uh, digest the indictment. And we are going to be looking at some of the, the great prosecutors and great defense lawyers in Georgia going head to head throughout this process. I think, though, it's important to remember that this is really about the residents of Fulton, their votes, uh, and uh, looking to see whether the facts and, and law actually match up in the way that the district attorney has laid out for the grand jury. All right, Gwen Keyes, appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. So our coverage of the fourth indictment of former President Trump continues. We're going to take you back out live to the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta, Georgia, and dive deeper into these new charges. Morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. It is Tuesday, August 15th, and we are following huge breaking news overnight. Donald Trump has been indicted again, this time by a grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia. The former president is facing 13 felony charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in the state. And it's worth noting he's not alone this time. 18 co-defendants are also charged in this indictment, including Rudy Giuliani and Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. They're all facing RICO, racketeering charges which are traditionally used to prosecute, prosecute mafia bosses and gang leaders. District Attorney Fannie Willis has ordered Trump and his alleged co-conspirators to turn themselves in by next Friday. Overnight, Trump slammed the indictment. He said it was politically inspired to disrupt his presidential run. And this is Trump's fourth criminal indictment. He's now facing a total of 91, 91 charges in Georgia, Florida, New York, and Washington, D.C. We have a lot to get to. CNN This Morning special live coverage starts right now. Now, good morning, everyone. We're going to show you live Fulton County Courthouse, where a grand jury has indicted Donald Trump on eight and 18 co-defendants for their alleged scheme to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia. And here's a look at the newspaper headlines across the nation this morning. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's front page, a photo of Trump surrounded by all his 18 alleged co-conspirators. We have team coverage this morning. Our Nick Valencia joins us live outside of that courthouse in Fulton County, Georgia. Our senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, standing by at the magic wall to break down all the new charges. We also have our political experts with us to weigh in. Let's begin with Nick at the courthouse. Nick, good morning to you. So now Trump has until next Friday, a week from this Friday, to surrender, right? That's right. And he had called this a politically motivated investigation. He tried to get his supporters here in the streets. We didn't see any of them yesterday. Though security was taken very seriously, in part because of that explosive rhetoric. At the end of the day, though, Fonnie Willis got what she wanted. Trump has been indicted yet again. A Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment. The 98-page indictment lists 41 felony counts against former President Trump and 18 co-defendants to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election results, accusing them of, quote, unlawfully conspired and endeavored to conduct and participate in a criminal enterprise. Trump charged with 13 counts in the indictment. Every individual charged in the indictment is charged with one count 
of violating Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act through participation in a criminal enterprise in Fulton County, Georgia, and elsewhere to accomplish the illegal goal of allowing Donald J. Trump to seize the presidential term of office beginning on January 20th, 21. The indictment also included an additional 30 unindicted co-conspirators in addition to the charged defendants. In a statement, Trump's attorneys calling the grand jury presentation, quote, one-sided and the events of Monday, quote, shocking and absurd. Ohio Representative Jim Jordan, a Trump ally, tweeting out, he did nothing wrong. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying, justice should be blind, but Biden has weaponized government against his leading political opponent to interfere in the 2024 election. But uh, it was it was a, a very uh, intense uh, you know, meeting. Jeff Duncan, CNN contributor and former Georgia lieutenant governor on his testimony before an Atlanta grand jury. I can tell you that there was the highest level of attention in that room uh, from folks with the district attorney's office to through the jurors. It was just an extremely uh, intense uh, period of time and uh, everybody was prepared. The indictment stemmed from a two and a half year criminal investigation into Trump's alleged interference in the 2020 Georgia presidential election, including his call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have because we won the state. To the fake electors who convened to cast illegitimate votes for Trump. The investigation also accuses multiple defendants of harassment of election workers and a voting systems breach in rural Coffee County. I want to try him and be respectful for our sovereign states. And while Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis says she intends to try the 19 defendants together, it's up to the judge on when the trial will proceed. We do want to move this case along, and so we will be asking for a proposed order that occurs a trial date within the next six months. The former president is facing a flurry of legal filings and legal issues, and it's, you know, for some, it's hard to keep up. But this is more than just about his so-called perfect phone call with Georgia's Secretary of State. This, according to Fonnie Willis, is about an orchestrated and organized effort to pressure Georgia lawmakers and Fulton County election workers to overturn legitimate results. Phil and Poppy, uh, Trump and his co-defendants have until August 25th to turn themselves in. All right, Nick Valencia live outside the Fulton County Courthouse. Thank you, Poppy. All right, let's go through all of this with our senior legal analyst, Ellie Honey. Good morning, Ellie. Great to have you. Walk us through first who got charged. Yeah, Poppy, the fourth indictment has now landed. And just to orient people, because there's so many of these, let's just take a moment. We've seen the New York state charge relating to hush money. That indictment came back in April. The two Jack Smith federal cases in D.C. and Mar-a-Lago, Florida, those have already been indicted. And now we have the indictment in Georgia state court for the interfere, attempt to interfere with the Georgia results of the 2020 election. So this indictment is a big one. There are 19 different people charged here mm -hmm. in 41 counts. And again, we're under Georgia state law here. So let's look at who these 19 defendants are. Donald Trump, of course, the first defendant listed. He is front and center. Everything in this case, not surprisingly, revolves around him. This one is a surprise. Yeah, because he's Meadows, not in the federal indictment. Not in the federal indictment, not even listed as a co-conspirator in the federal indictment. Some people are wondering, where is he in the federal indictment? He is charged in the Georgia indictment. A bit of history, too. Second time we've ever seen a White House chief of staff criminally charged. The first, of course, was Mr. Haldeman, 
back in the Watergate era. He is charged in this indictment. Eight lawyers, Poppy, are charged with crimes in this indictment. Notable Rudy Giuliani. Look, he's been in the news a lot. He's been subpoenaed. He's been sued. He's been investigated. But now he's been criminally indicted. He's a former federal prosecutor. These five lawyers are all listed as co-conspirators in Jack Smith's federal investigation. Not charged, but listed as co-conspirators. The lawyers are really the engines here. According to the indictment, so many of these schemes ran through, were created by, were executed Mm -hmm. by these eight lawyers. So what does that mean for a defense of counsel defense, uh, an advice of counsel defense then? Yeah, so it complicates things because if Donald Trump wants to say, well, I relied on what these folks told me to do, well, the allegation is they were in on the crime with him. And if prosecutors can prove that, that will overcome Mm. the advice of counsel defense. And then we have the other people who were indicted. Worth noting, three of these people were fake electors. Three people who signed those fake elector certificates out of 16 total. So Fonnie Willis is being selective here in who she's charging. She also charged a former Trump campaign official, a couple people who were involved in intimidation of some of those poll workers and trying to get them to shape their testimony. And then finally, two people who were involved in that breach of the election system that we just learned about. We broke the news here on CNN a couple of days ago. So you add it all up, 19 defendants in this one indictment. What are the other components of this story that struck you reading through it? Yeah, so look, the lead charge here, count one, all 19 defendants are charged with racketeering under Georgia state law. This is so important because it's such a powerful tool for prosecutors. This group is identified in the indictment as a, quote, criminal enterprise with Donald Trump at the head of it. And the indictment lays out 161 acts, conduct that this enterprise engaged in. Now, not all of them are crimes standing alone, but they're all part of the illegal conspiracy. Big thing we have to know, five-year mandatory minimum. Anyone who gets convicted in prison, no probation, judge can't do anything about it. Anyone who gets convicted of this will go away for five years. That is Georgia law. Unless they're successful on appeal. Unless they went on appeal, exactly. Now, the indictment has other counts of forgery, false statements, obstruction. They really break down into a few different chapters. First, false statements to the state legislature. We remember Rudy Giuliani lied to the Georgia State Assembly about election fraud. We're going to be joined by one of the Georgia lawmakers who was there when he did this. Yes. Well, this is right in the indictment, and you will have plenty of important questions to ask. Solicitation of state officials. The most famous example, of course, the infamous phone call to Brad Raffensperger. Need you to find 11,780 votes. The fake electors scheme. 16 people signed again. Three of these 16 folks have now been charged as indictments. The lawyers were instrumental in putting this together. Harassment and intimidation of election workers and then lying about them in official documents and to the assembly. We remember Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman. They testified in the January 6th committee. Solicitation of the United States Justice Department. Jeffrey Clark, the lawyer we saw before. And remember, Donald Trump tried to get high-ranking officials. One official took a note that Trump said, just say the election was corrupt, leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Solicitation of Mike Pence. Breach of those voting machines, which we talked about the other day. And finally, obstruction of justice and obstruction of governmental proceeding. There is your indictment. Wow. Ellie Honig, thank you. You'll be back at the table with more soon. Phil. Witch hunt, politically motivated, these terms are probably pretty familiar. Former President Trump once again slamming an indictment against him. The playbook that you're familiar with and what he said overnight. And only about a quarter of the Maui wildfire burned area has been searched. The death toll now stands at 99 people this morning and officials say that number could double in the days ahead. We are 
you know, we're burdened by the circumstance of climate change and tragedy at the same time. Uh, that's why this fire occurred for the most part. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Donald Trump reacting to the news of his fourth criminal indictment this year, calling a, quote, politically motivated election interference. The former president and 18 co-defendants are now charged in connection with efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. On Fox News Digital last night, Trump slammed Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis, saying, quote, it's a continuation of the greatest and long-running witch hunt in American history. Joining us now is Elena Treen from Washington. Elena, we've been talking about your reporting this morning, what's going on behind the scenes there. We know the playbook to some degree. Is anything different with indictment number four? It's not, Phil and Poppy. Uh, They have done this now three times before, and they think that playbook uh, is working. And so they're going to continue to use it, his advisors tell me. They'll label these charges as a political persecution and argue that uh, the district attorney is going after him uh, as an effort to interfere in the 2024 presidential election. Uh, Donald Trump himself has been arguing that they are attacking him because he is doing so well in the polls. And as we've seen, Uh, with the previous indictments, Donald Trump personally is trying to speak about this. He gave that interview with Fox News and railed against these charges. He said, quote, this politically inspired indictment, which could have been brought close to three years ago, was tailored for placement right smack in the middle of my political campaign, where I'm leading all Republicans by a lot and beating Joe Biden soundly in almost all polls. Now, uh, Phil and Pop, I'm also told that Donald Trump's team was prepared for this indictment. And as they have done with the previous charges that he's faced uh, throughout the past several months, they had been preparing his surrogates and his allies, readying his defenders with pre-written statements and talking points uh, so that they were immediately ready to respond to these charges. And we did see his allies do just that last night. Uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy called the charges a desperate sham. Uh, Jim Jordan argued that Donald Trump did nothing wrong. And this is the kind of rhetoric that they want. And they want his uh, allies to continue rallying around him and defending him at this time. Do you think this indictment actually coming down in the way that it did uh, changes what happens next week in terms of what Trump does? Does he go to the debate on Wednesday night? Because by Friday, he's got to turn himself in. Right. No, it's a great question. I mean, from all indications that I've gotten from Donald Trump's team, I do think he'll be making a statement about the debate. I I don't really see this changing uh, his decision making process, at least from my conversations that I've had with his advisors yesterday and last night. Um, it, It doesn't seem likely that he's really interested in debating at this point. That could change, of course. Um, But again, we do know that they see the political advantages of these charges, at least in the short term. They're going to be fundraising off of this. They're going to continue talking about this. But at the same time, we do know that Donald Trump does not want to be indicted. He is very frustrated by the mounting legal troubles he faces. And so I think you're going to continue to see that as well play out a little bit behind the scenes, Poppy and Phil. Okay. All right. Elena Treen, thank you. A lot of numbers to keep track of this morning. Former President Trump is now facing his fourth criminal case in four different jurisdictions. When you tally all the charges up, 91 of them against a former president. And in Georgia specifically, he's facing 13 counts. The indictment alleges Trump and 18 other defendants, quote, unlawfully conspired and endeavored to conduct and participate in a criminal enterprise after Trump lost the election in Georgia. In all, in Georgia, there are 41 criminal counts. 
Joining us now, CNN political commentator Bakari Sellers, CNN political commentator and former special assistant to President George W. Bush, Scott Jennings, and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. I, I keep... Don't give me that look, Scott. <laughs> I, I think I, himself. Throughout the course of this morning, it's the pause and think, 91 charges over the course of four-plus months. There's no precedent for any of them for a former president. He's leading the Republican primary <laughs> by 25 to 30-plus points. No one's attacking him that's anywhere close to him in polling on these indictments. Scott Jennings... Why not? Well, uh, because more than half of the Republican Party, maybe 55% of the Republican Party, sees this presidential campaign uh, as a referendum on the treatment of Donald Trump. And that's the primary electorate. Now, the general election electorate will see it much differently. They'll see it as a referendum on how their lives are going and the economy and so on and so forth. But in this pool of people, they see it all as a referendum on the treatment of Donald Trump. And they're not asking themselves, do we want to have a general election about Joe Biden's job performance or about Donald Trump's you know, persecution? Uh, they're just seeing this as a way to, for him to be able to vindicate himself against all this Democratic persecution. And the rest of these Republican candidates know it. They don't know what to do about it. None of them have figured out what to do about mm -hmm. it. And I don't suspect any of them are going to figure mm -hmm. out what to do about it. I mean, right now he's sitting in the mid-50s in this thing. Even if he were in the mid-40s, he would almost be unbeatable in a fragmented field. So here, here's my question. A, can you tell me that any of the other dozen-plus candidates would look at this and think, that's cool. You know, these 98 pages, what Trump and his team and the 18 co-conspirators, we're good with that. For themselves? No, like in general. <laughs> like maybe for no. president of the exactly. United Exactly. So yeah. what should they do about it? I mean, look, they're all trapped all the Republicans are trapped. They're, they're trapped in a room with Donald Trump. He's not trapped in there with them. They're <laughs> trapped in there with him. And, and, but they're also trapped in there with his voters and the people who believe he has been unfairly treated. Those people are not going away and they're highly likely to turn out in this primary. Not a single one of them has a strategy to deal with it. Other than this, maybe Republicans decide, like, I just don't want to deal with this anymore. Who else is out there? But that's out of your hands, you know? I mean, you're waiting on people to make that decision. And right now, there's no evidence that they are. There are people, I think, running interesting campaigns and saying interesting things. But that's different than actually convincing people to leave Trump by the wayside. Yeah. Those are tough questions at 7 o'clock. So. <laughs> I know, Phil. That's what it was like. <laughs> I was like, what is he doing? It's 7 o'clock. gave him the look. <laughs> no. He gave that look. He teed me up, you know? Phil the side eye <laughs> All right. what you get back. Way in here. Oh, I was not about <laughs> Phil's side. I was like, he did a good job. No, I think I think what, what we're seeing, though, is that the refusal of and I, let me let's not put all the Republicans in the same category. Chris Christie has come out and been vocal. Asa Hutchinson, Asa Hutchinson? has so been vocal. Three percent, zero percent. Yeah, I mean, no I, I said a combined well, combined well, combined they get five percent of the electorate. They're well-known Republican former governors. Well, I, what decently I get it on the poll. Decent, decently well-known. I, I think that the Republican Party has a problem, and this is what happens when you allow cancers like Donald Trump to metastasize. And this problem is going to be around long after Donald Trump is president of the United States. Not only is he indicted four times, one of the things we don't talk about enough is he's indicted for different behavior in New York. It's uh, paying Stormy Daniels hush money. In South Florida, it's uh, classified documents. Now, this is January 6th. So it's not as if there is this, this coordinated effort by these far-left wackos to persecute the former president of the United States. 
No, this is a lot of smoke. And the question is, where there's smoke, is there fire? And what Fani did, which I would love to hear Ellie's comments, but what Fani did was she went in detail. I mean, this is beyond a federal speaking indictment. This is very granular, talking about the bad behavior of the president of the United States trying to overthrow the election. And they're going to try to compare this to uh, Bush Gore and how Democrats stood up and said, we don't believe he should be president of this elect, blah, blah, blah. But the overt acts, I mean, there are over 100 overt acts that this president coordinated with others, including a bell bondsman in Georgia, Rudy Giuliani and other people to overthrow an election, break into facilities, steal data. I mean, this is a very, very serious charge. Um, Bakari's right. I mean, the, the difference, I think, between the Jack Smith indictment and this indictment is the Jack Smith indictment is a mile wide and an inch deep. That's not a criticism of it, but he has to charge this conduct over seven states, the federal government, dozens of people. Fonnie Willis gets to drill way, way, way down in Georgia to the level of granularity of Trump and others trying to interfere with common election workers and just civilians trying to do their job. So it's a much narrower but way deeper look. Mm -hmm. There is a level of magical thinking with Trump because he got out of two impeachments, because he managed to win the White House while not winning the popular vote. He's always carried this, well, he'll figure out how to get out of it. It's not, these indictments look bad, but there is a, there is this sense of magical thinking about him that, well, he'll find a way. Don't worry. He'll, he's gonna, he'll find a way to beat him in the end. He's not convicted yet, and he is innocent until proven guilty. That's right. It's an, an important an, point. An indictment is a set of allegations. And you look at, we haven't seen the defense. And you look at what's happened to him over the years and the things he's gotten out of. The, the hardest core supporter, you're wondering why they're not finding other candidates? Because that's one of the things they like about him the most, is that no matter what they throw at him, he Fights. finds a way to beat it. And, and they probably believe that about this. Yeah, no, it, it's, a, it, it's actually a very good point, um, particularly on the support. You often come in and uh, you probably get attacked for explaining why base voters. <laughs> <laughs> but it's accurate. And I think it's important for people to understand that. I would note that the second impeachment he got out of in large part because people were saying, don't worry about it. The, justice, yeah. the judicial process will like take care like of this Mr. to some McConnell. degree. Yeah, that was Scott the argument of most Senate Republicans, Yes, was that we can't do this now. The courts will deal with it. And here Can we are. Also, I'm sorry. I, I just want to ask you about something, because I actually think this is a really important and to some degree underappreciated element of this case over the course of the last two plus years. And that is Ruby Freeman, the election workers, what happened there, uh, what Rudy Giuliani said, what Donald Trump said to Brad Raffensperger on the call. Everybody talks about the 11,000 plus votes. He also said something specific about Ruby Freeman. Take a listen. We had uh, at least 18,000 that's on tape. We had them counted very painstakingly. 18,000 voters uh, having to do with uh, Ruby Friedman. That's, uh, she's a vote scammer, a professional vote scammer and hustler. You know, we saw Ruby Freeman testify in front of the January 6th committee. It was very powerful. It was very emotional. You realize the very real human toll here. Actually, I, can we play that? There is nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? The president of the United States is supposed to represent every American, not to target one, but he targeted me. She testified publicly in front of the January 6th committee as well, which is very powerful. And I think what's striking was, one, that is a central piece of this indictment, the intimidation and all of the people 
Trump down that participated in it, but also the very real human toll yeah. and effect. And there's going to be cameras in the courtroom for well, this trial. This case is going to be very different for a couple of reasons. The first is when you look at the classified documents case, when you look at Jack Smith's uh, January 6th case, you don't have real victim, human victims involved. Now, there is a, the system is victimized, processes are victimized, you know, democracy is victimized. But here you have very tangible, real victims. And something that Scott said last night, and he echoes all the time, when we go around the country and do this work of politics, you meet very, very good human beings. You know, there are these, I refer to, to, to Ruby as one of those, uh, one of those old black women who sit in the front front row of the church and she wears the big hat. And like when you hug her, she smells you smell like Chanel number no. five the rest of the day. And she like cooks sweet potato pies and uses a whole stick of butter like she is the core principle of our democracy. She is the person who makes democracy work. And she is articulate about the fact that she's going through this pain because of the president of the United States. It also highlights something else about Donald Trump. And it's something we have to talk about. It's the way that he goes after black women when they are on the other side of him. We've seen it with Yamish. We've seen it with April Ryan. We've seen it with our own Abby Phillip. And now we're seeing it with Fonnie Willis. Fonnie is the daughter of a black panther, a criminal defense attorney. Fonnie's name is Swahili. It means prosperous. I mean, she is the prototype of what Donald Trump has a disdain for. So between Donald Trump and and Ruby and and Fonnie and all of these other subplots, not only is it going to make for good TV, but it's actually going to have people realize that there are real victims in this case in Georgia in comparison, where, of course, Stormy Daniels and Michael Cohen are victims, but they're less sympathetic than the people who make democracy run. And by the way, I love Stormy and Michael. <laughs> I mean, not just I hear you on good TV, but it's about transparency for the American people to be able no, to no, see. No, no, it's about good TV. TV transparency for the American people, Ellie, that they're not going to get in any of these federal, that they're not going to get any of these federal cases. But you combine the human element of the witnesses that are going to be testifying and the cameras it's going to be powerful. So it's such an important point here because Bakari's right. We almost certainly will have TV cameras if and well, when this case is tried. But I think there's very little chance this one gets tried before the election. Right, yeah. I mean, and by the way, th- yeah. this, th- there's already broad dissatisfaction in the American electorate that we're even going to have this rematch if we have it. Throw on top of that these wild charges. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, unprecedented. Well, and we're not going to have a resolution to it before we cast our ballots. I mean, this was going to be to my, me. Yeah. I, I, most, I think the average person, like, how do you expect me to vote on this election when you've got these political allegations laying out there against one of the two you don't, candidates? You don't vote for the one that's indicted. But yeah. Can you talk, Ellie, about how He's this trial is going to be yet. different? I mean, because it's going to be in front of these cameras. Yeah, I mean, so. The federal cases, which are very likely to go first, and I think it's increasingly clear that Judge Chutkin is going to schedule that January 6th trial before the election, maybe even the Mar-a-Lago trial. The federal courts don't allow cameras in. Now, I've been on the soapbox that they have to change that. We have to see this. But in all likelihood, they're not going to change. It's their own rule. They make their own rules. They've never changed it. And so people aren't going to likely aren't going to actually see that trial. And And I do wonder if and when a verdict comes down, Will that change anything politically? Would a conviction change anything in the Republican base? We know, I think, that a hung jury are not guilty. A conviction with a mandatory minimum would. Well, but, it, I mean, but also, also, let me, also let me. let's also say this. I mean, Fani, and I, I just wanted to make sure I got this out there for the viewers, but Fani has also done this before. 
I mean, she's taken on YFN. She's taken on YSL. And to your point, the reason this is going to take so long is because we're watching Young Thug's trial go on right now. And they're still in jury selection. Yes. Yeah. And it's been it's seven, be eight months. It's going to be the longest criminal trial like in the history of Georgia. So yeah. this is going to be a long time. To answer your question, yes. there is a cohort of Republicans who will not vote for a convicted felon. Even if today you're like, you know, he might beat this. This all might be made up by... But when he, if he is convicted, I'm telling you, there is a cohort of voters, lots of Republicans who won't do it. it start, you see it in some of the polling. I'm just telling you, people are not going to want to walk in there and associate their franchise with a convicted felon. So to put him up as the general election nominee carrying a felony conviction in any jurisdiction would be almost certain political death in the election. It seems like a point, perhaps, that somebody running against him in a primary would want to make after an indictment. Stop asking them to be courageous, Phil. <laughs> wow, I'll leave it at that. Uh, we're going to get back to all of this. For the record, that wasn't directed at Scott. <laughs> I know. Everybody, I had no, it's never directed at Scott. Everybody's always like, but, it goes after just, Scott so Jennings. I, and I'm like, know. no, 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 he's just explaining what's actually happening. I know you're making that point in jest. Nobody else bit, got the rap in their ear? But just, I think, just me? I think we're beyond the rap. But I think it's a really good point, Bakari. You're, 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 you were saying it in jest, but it's oh, actually so I mean, it, true. I mean, if I were sitting here and, and I was advising Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or somebody else with a modicum of talent, I believe they have talent. I would say, look, t- today is make or break time. I mean, sink or swim. Do we stand for something? Do we show that we're courageous or not? And the fact is, you're not going to win this nomination without doing something different. Being Trump light, that's not working. Well, that's a good point. What you're currently doing isn't working. You could try something else. <laughs> I mean, I, my, I am dubious that it would work, but for most of the people you yeah. just mentioned, they're, they're I mean, you're, you're, you've, been, you've been at 4% since January. Uh, did you rip your ear out because you were tired of them yelling at <laughs> <again? laughs> well, I thought if I took it out, I wouldn't be able to hear you anymore. Yet, <laughs> I still can't hear you. All right, we're about to hear it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have you guys back. Thanks, we're guys. Get to we appreciate this moment, it. But we still want to keep our focus yeah. and the spotlight on the devastation in Hawaii. Uh, we now know this morning there are 99 deaths so far from this wildfire. Officials there Warn the number could double in the next few days. We've got a report from Lahaina on how they're just coping with this disaster. Please, we need help. We need help. We need, we need the next step. This is, this is just the first inning. This is the first inning of what, what we're facing. It's not just ash on your clothing when you take it off. It's our loved ones. That's the reverence. That was the Maui police chief talking about crews searching for loved ones in the wreckage left behind by the devastating wildfires there. Overnight, he told reporters they've searched about 25% of the scorched area. Local officials say 99 people have died in the fires, and the governor is warning that number could double in the coming days. CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir reports from Maui on how people there are coming together to try and help their neighbors. Me and Brittany will lead the front. We got right behind us. Just stay close. When Charlie and Brittany Fleck saw pictures of the devastation on Lahaina, the couple from Maui knew they had to do something. Come, come. We need to give you cash. We got cash. Money? Thank you. I think think there's there's a big ice truck. We got help on the way. So they put out a plea on Facebook, and when thousands of dollars began rolling in, they began handing it out. Hey, thank you so much. We're, com- we're coming for you. Thank you. Aloha. But that didn't seem like enough, so they organized a caravan. 
and sweet-talked their way past red tape and checkpoints. And when they finally saw what Lahaina looks like for the first time, they wept. But just on the edge of the burn scars, we find an inspiring example of Hawaiian togetherness. Powerful, you Cold towel, are you kidding? <laughs> that is aloha hospitality, yeah. thank there you. There you go, man, thank right there, you, over your neck, keep you okay, nice and cool. Archie Kalepa is a Hall of Fame surfer and lifeguard with Maui roots that go back nine generations. This is your actual house here, or? Yeah, this is my actual home, and we was really lucky because um, our neighbors, uh, they were here fighting the fire right at this corner, and um, the fire department said, this is our last stand. We're gonna hold the line right here. Well, there's so much frustration over the official response so far. He says authorities deserve some understanding given the size of the disaster. But this right here is a crime scene. And so what people don't understand is the government has to do due diligence before they start moving in. So it's a, a humanitarian response in the at, middle of an, a working crime scene. Exactly. But at another relief pod on a beach nearby, frustration has turned to anger. You know, everybody's like, oh, you know, they're going to come and help. They're going to come and help. They don't give a boss. Nobody came for help, boss. You know what I mean? We rely on people like you guys that get compassion like we do. You know what I mean? That, that willing for help us because, please, we need help. We need help. We need, we need the next step. This is, this is just the first inning. This is the first inning of what, what we're facing. Tourism is our number one um, source of income. I would hope that our representatives, our politicians, our government would ask the people from here, when can we open? They should not be telling us, oh, we want to open six months from now. The truth of the matter is, when you look at the overall dev devastation, we are not going to be ready to allow people to see what we're living through in six months. Bill Weir, CNN, Maui. We promise to keep bringing you reports and updates out of Hawaii throughout all of this. Meantime, Fonnie Willis, the DA in Fulton County, Georgia, giving former President Trump and the other 18 allies charged until noon next Friday to surrender to authorities what the process and the arraignment could look like that's ahead more cnn this morning to come after the break welcome back to our special live coverage fulton county district attorney fonnie willis says former president trump and his 18 co-defendants must surrender by noon next friday that's august 25th the sheriff there stating earlier this month that his office had been planning for this day listen and so we've planned for months to really understand the day-to-day the -day, uh, really coverage of what this looks like. And so we put a lot of resources in place. Our goal is to stay focused, and, and I've said this before, we're ready. With us now, CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller's at the table, along with our Senior Legal Analyst, Ellie Honig. Great to have you guys. Welcome, John. What's this going to look like? They don't, all 19 don't have to go together, obviously, right? No, I mean, the... the uh They've been given till Friday to, so until Friday, doesn't mean they all have to show up on next Friday, Friday. Uh, next Friday. Uh, so they can come in in groups as individuals. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they do it. Uh, but 
the security is, has been set up for a long time. We saw the barricades go up a while ago. Uh, we've heard the sheriff talk about the threats uh, to the district attorney, racist threats, uh, threats against her life, the threats against him. Uh, this isn't something they started thinking about in the last two weeks. When the New York indictment uh, came, Fulton County had people up here with the NYPD watching what that process looked like That's in right. terms of security crowds. When Miami happened, shorter trip, they sent people down there watching. They've talked to the D.C. Metro people. They've been studying the physical security dynamics. Uh, they have their threat fusion cell. They're tracking calls for crowds where they see them. Um, they've looked at the numbers of people that showed up in other places. Uh, so the sheriff has done a lot of, uh, Patrick Labatt, a lot of prep here. Can I ask you about something he said uh, a week or two ago, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, um, when he was asked, you know, this might seem small or somewhat trivial, but the president hasn't had, former president hasn't had mugshots. There haven't been handcuffs. There haven't been any of that. Uh, take a listen to what he said about the process. Unless someone tells me differently, we are, we are following our, part, our, our normal practices. And so it doesn't matter your status. We, we have mugshots ready for you. Do you think that's true? And I, I, I'm not saying he's, he's wrong, but the Secret Service has a role here. The Secret Service plays a huge role here. They've been working with them, or at least consulting with them, leading up to this moment. What's happening behind the scenes on that? So that's going to be a discussion. Uh, mugshots are mugshots. Uh, but when the Secret Service has a protectee, and they're very used to dealing with the local law enforcement on the ground, if they ask for the sake of security um, that, you know, he's not going to get away, um, and we would prefer not to have him handcuffed because, think of the logic, if we have to grab him and rush him out of somewhere, you know, it's very hard to run when you're rear cuffed, which would be the procedure. Um, they might prevail on that, uh, the sheriff being cooperative. On the other hand, you know, the signal the sheriff is sending is nobody's special here. The law is the law. We're going to use our regular process so we don't have to overthink this. Um, I think the Secret Service factor may actually be something that changes that. But you have other people, uh, for instance, Rudolph Giuliani, the former mayor of New York, U.S. attorney, who have never worn handcuffs and never pictured themselves that way, um, that will go through the normal process because there's no, there's no Secret Service connection involved there. Who just, in such a sort of turn of irony, also prosecuted people under RICO statutes. I mean, it's jarring. So pioneered it. Pioneered, yeah. yeah, really. Even fine. as John said it, I'm thinking of the guy whose picture was on the wall of the office That's I right. worked at. And he's, he's right. going to be going through this, but you're right. Um, yeah. Sarah Murray brilliantly asked Fonnie Willis last night in this presser, are you going to try them all together, all 19? Her answer was one word. It was yes. You think there's a constitutional issue with that? My answer is one word, no. Why? <laughs> so... Three reasons. One, practical. one practical. I mean, you would have to rent out Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. I mean, and it's not just 19 defendants. Each defendant has multiple lawyers, paralegals. You, you could have 100 people in the well. There's no courtroom that can hold that. The second thing is the trial would take forever because every time a witness testifies, every defendant has the opportunity to cross-examine that person. 19 potentially cross-examinations. But finally, there's a constitutional problem. The U.S. Supreme Court has said, if you get to a point where you're trying too many people at once, that starts to infringe on their rights because there could be spillover prejudice. It gets to be too much for a jury. The court has said, once you get into double digits, mm. you're on shaky ground. 19, if, if she were to try 19 people together, it would be reversed. So what's the strategy to saying yes last night then? 
I think it's I think it's bluster. I think she just said, I'm ready. Oh, look, prosecute. And I don't mean that in a neg- in negative way. Yeah. I was always trained. You're just we're ready. We'll take everyone on at once. Let's do this. I'll try them tomorrow. That's how good prosecutors talk. And I think that's all she was doing. OK, fascinating, guys. Thank you very Thanks, much, guys. John Miller. I appreciate it. So what could former President Trump's defense look like in this case? We're going to ask one of his former lawyers who defended him at a second impeachment trial. That's ahead. But next, retired NFL star Michael Orr, who was the inspiration behind the movie and the book The Blind Side, claims it was all a lie, the allegations he's making against Sean and Leanne Tuohy. Next. Michael Orr, the retired NFL star and inspiration behind the Academy Award-winning film The Blind Side, alleges it was all a lie. Orr states in a new petition that Sean and Leanne Tuohy told him they were going to adopt him, but never did. Or says they instead filed a conservatorship that made millions for them and their children. CNN's Brent Gingras has the story. Bring back a lot of good memories. Michael Orr. First, he was a homeless kid who experienced poverty. Well, the goal was, was defeating. But later, Orr became an American football star whose life story inspired the best-selling book and film, The Blind Side, earning a Best Picture nomination in 2009 and the Academy Award for Sandra Bullock as Best Actress. But now Orr's life story has taken a different turn. In a Tennessee court, the former football player has filed a petition to end Sean and Leanne Tuohy's conservatorship over him. He became part of our lives. Right after he turned 18, Orr moved in with the Tuohys. In the lawsuit, Orr claims the Tuohys told him they were going to adopt him, but instead filed a conservatorship which kept millions of dollars from him. The former NFL player is asking the Tuohys, quote, show cause for failure to meet their required duties to provide regular accountings or to act in his best interest. According to the court petition, Orr claims they gave him legal papers he thought were necessary for the adoption. What he signed, however, and unknown to Orr until after February 2023, were not adoption papers. Instead, the petition says the papers appointed Sean and Leanne Tuohy as his conservators with, quote, total control over Michael Orr's ability to negotiate for or enter any contract, despite the fact he was over 18 years of age and had no diagnosed physical or psychological disabilities. Orr claims the Tuohys falsely advised him that the adoption would have to be called a conservatorship since he was over 18. But according to the petition in 2006, the Tuohys, representing themselves as the adoptive parents, negotiated contracts for the movie The Blind Side. Okay, big smile, Tuohy family. The movie has reportedly grossed more than $330 million. The petition also states that another contract from April 2007 gave away Orr's name, likeness, voice to the movie studio, quote, without any payment whatsoever. Orr claims he, quote, at no time ever willingly or knowingly signed such a document. The petition is asking the Tuohys to provide a sworn accounting of the money belonging to Orr that he says should have been paid to him. But Sean Tuohy told a Tennessee newspaper that his family is devastated. It's upsetting to think we would make money off any of our children, but we're going to love Michael at 37, just like we loved him at 16. Now, we are expecting to hear more from the Tuohys today in a statement. Uh, Sean Tuohy did say to the local newspaper in Tennessee that, you know, this was part of the, you know, they had they had they were considered boosters right for Ole Miss. They went to Ole Miss, their alumni, the 
contribute a lot of money to there. That's where he wanted to go to school. So they, this was all part of that legal process. Of course, that is not what Michael Orr is saying. He just wants to be away from this family, according to what this lawsuit is essentially saying. So we'll have to see what happens. There is more does feel to this story. We know Michael Orr does have a book that is uh, that has come out. So we'll, we'll stay on top of this one for you. Yeah, guys. please do. It's a fascinating story. It definitely feels like more to come for sure. Bryn Zengrass, thank you. Rudy Giuliani, one of the 19 people indicted for his role in trying to subvert the 2020 election in Georgia. Coming up, we will be joined by Jen Jordan, who heard Giuliani's election lies firsthand when she was a Georgia state senator. It's her first interview since she testified before that Fulton County grand jury yesterday. Fifth president of the United States indicted on state charges stemming from his and others' efforts to overturn Joe Biden's election win in the state of Georgia. I make decisions in this office based on the facts and the law. We look at the facts, we look at the law, and we bring charges. She didn't throw the book at him, she threw the library. Now having another indictment for him questioning the integrity of this country's elections, that is what we're doing to a president that served this country. The governor of Georgia, I guess, can't pardon. I don't know how you get out of this. Do I intend to try the 19 defendants in this indictment together? Yes. The calendar is getting quite crowded with all of the possible trials, both criminal and civil, that the former president is facing. This case has a couple of twists on advice of counsel. You see some of the lawyers on whose advice he relied indicted. This is disgraceful. It is an abuse of power by angry Democrats who have decided the rule of law doesn't matter to them anymore. It's much bigger than Watergate. It goes to the very foundation of democracy. This is is very different and much more serious and much more troubling. Well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us on a truly significant morning breaking news overnight. Donald Trump indicted again on felony charges, this time for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in the state of Georgia. And he is not alone. The Fulton County Grand Jury also indicting 18 alleged co-conspirators. They include Rudy Giuliani and also former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And they're all facing RICO racketeering charges, which have been famously used in the past to take down mob bosses. The indictment alleges that rather than abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, the defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. Paula Reed is live outside the Fulton County Courthouse. Paula, we now have the 98 pages. We have uh, the former president and 18 associates here. What happens next that this is now all at this point? Well, Phil, the next step is surrender, and the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, has given uh, 19 defendants until next Friday at noon uh, to arrange their surrender, and then there will be an initial appearance. It'll be a little bit different than what we've seen in federal court, where they tried to do processing, initial appearance, and arraignment all in one fell swoop. But it's going to take a while uh, to go through this process with 19 different defendants. Now, we fully expect the former president uh, will cooperate here in terms of the surrender, going through the process. But then after that, we expect there'll be many legal challenges to this case. The first, I'm told, will be a challenge to jurisdiction, an attempt to try to move this case from Fulton County to the federal level. Now, one of the biggest advantages that would potentially give the former president is drawing from a broader jury pool instead of just heavily Democratic Fulton County. Can you lay out 
Fonnie Willis's case here. I mean, it's incredibly complex, 98 pages in this indictment, I think 161 acts, but lay out in broad terms. Yeah, Poppy, it's, it's quite a sweeping indictment. I, while this is the fourth criminal indictment the former president has faced this year, it is by far uh, the most detailed, the most broad. And here, the district attorney has made a choice to structure this as a RICO case. You know, RICO laws were designed to help go after organized crime. So you can charge people as a unit, even if not every single person in that unit uh, participated in every single alleged activity. Now, some legal experts say that will also uh, likely be challenged in court, but she alleges a conspiracy. She says uh, this group of people engaged in a conspiracy and she lays out eight specific things that they did to support this accusation, starting with lying to state officials and state legislatures as part of an effort to try to install fake electors, to try to undermine the electoral college. They also uh, allege that some of these defendants were harassing witnesses, uh, particularly election workers, trying to get them uh, sort of caught up in this alleged scheme. Also, they talk about the pressure the Justice Department was facing from former President Trump and even at least one official inside the Justice Department at that time. We also know and we've reported extensively on the pressure the vice president was facing. That is also one of the eight pillars that she laid out here. They also talk about uh, attempts to breach voting systems in rural Georgia in an attempt to find this alleged fraud. And then finally, they allege that there was a cover up. So she broadly lays out that case and then details throughout the rest of the 100 pages, 161 different discrete acts that these defendants allegedly committed. Paula, I have to ask, because I know in reporting on all of this, you, you have done a ton of reporting on this individual specifically, and, and that's Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff. Were you oh, surprised, yeah. especially since he was not listed as, he was not indicted or listed as an unindicted co-conspirator in the special counsel's case, were you surprised to see his name among uh, the 18 Trump associates indicted here? I was not surprised to see him here, right? It was more surprising not to see him in the special counsel's indictment. Because you remember, if you go back to the January 6th investigation on the Hill, one of their key conclusions was that all roads in this alleged conspiracy led to Mark Meadows. They really framed him based on their investigation as the key enabler of former President Trump and his efforts to try to overturn the election. So obviously we've been trying to figure out what's going on with him in the special counsel probe, uh, but it was notable. He was a conspicuous absence in, this, in the federal indictment raising questions about whether he's cooperating. Now here, he has been charged, and that is supported by many allegations, many instances of him being involved in this alleged conspiracy. So it's not a surprise to see him here. I think it was definitely more of a surprise that he was not in the special counsel indictment. And there are questions about whether, how these cases will interact, which one will go first. It's really interesting because Mark Meadows really is probably the key player here in some ways, even more so than former President Trump. Paula Reed, thank you for all of that. Rudy Giuliani is in the middle of many of the episodes that form the basis of this indictment, including a Georgia Senate subcommittee hearing. You're looking at video of it. This was December 2020, during which he and other Trump associates pushed false claims of mass election fraud. So according to the indictment, quote, the purpose of these false statements was to persuade Georgia legislators to reject lawful electoral votes cast by the duly elected presidential electors from Georgia. Here's what Rudy Giuliani told state lawmakers on that day in that meeting. It's your responsibility 
if a false and fraudulent count is submitted to the United States government. And it is clear that the count you have right now is false. Our next guest, former George Former Georgia State Senator Jen Jordan was at that hearing, and she was one of the witnesses who testified yesterday to the Fulton County Grand Jury before this indictment was handed up. It is her first interview since testifying, and she joins us now. Good morning. Thanks for joining us once again. Talk to us about your interview before the grand jury. How would you explain it? What did you say? What were you asked? Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, so I was the first witness uh, that um, went into the grand jury room, and I'll tell you, it was um, it was a little overwhelming. I mean, there's there's been so much that has happened um, that that we know and what we don't know. Um, but I'll tell you, when I walked in there and sat down, it was clear that every man and woman in that room um, was taking, you know, their role and their job very seriously. They were interested um, in what was happening. They had questions. And, um, you know, 40 minutes later when I walked out, I, you know, I, I felt like it was in good hands. You said you were the first uh, to go in yesterday. There were expected to be 10 uh, total witnesses. It was expected to take two days uh, or could take two days. It all happened in a day. It all happened seemingly, I think, a little bit faster than everybody thought. Did you have any sense when you were there uh, that it was going to move that fast, or why? No, I didn't. But I can tell you that with respect to grand juries in Georgia, they really lead the process. So while you have prosecutors that will go in mm -hmm. um, and maybe have a plan in terms of how they're going to present, um, at the end of the day, the ebb and flow is kind of guided by the grand jurors themselves. So if they have more questions with respect to one witness, um, they may spend more time with that witness. Um, or if they think they've heard enough, right? Um, they can end it at any point in time and say, all right, we, we've heard enough, we've seen enough, we're ready to vote. And I think that's what happened yesterday. Um, maybe there were two days that were planned to be chock full of, of witnesses. Um, but after two or three had gone, it was clear that the evidence, at least from my perspective, um, it is fairly overwhelming. And really, the bar in Georgia with respect to an indictment isn't very high. Um, it's just probable cause. So, like I said, probably after two, three, four witnesses, um, you know, probably from the grand jurors' perspective, they had heard what they needed to hear and really just wanted to make sure um, that, that all the witnesses that they needed to hear with respect to all of uh, the charges included in the indictment, that they were able to get through it by the end of the day. What did the grand jurors home in on with you, and what do we not know? You know, I think it's one of those things where, think about it, you're, you're called to a grand jury, you are doing your normal kind of civic duty. They had already looked at other presentments earlier um, on other criminal cases in Fulton County, and then all of a sudden the door opens and they're told that they are the Trump grand jury. Um, that's got to be a very, very serious moment for all of them. So, you know, when I walked in, I think that that, that you know, Understanding what they were undertaking and how serious it was was just starting to hit each of them. And so they asked questions. They asked follow-ups. They pushed me, you know, if they really were, like, wondering, what does that mean exactly? Or, or how do you know that? Um, they definitely weren't just being spoon-fed. Um, and they, 
you know, it, it really seemed to me that they wanted to do a good job. They wanted to do the yeah. right thing, whatever the right thing was at that moment. Can I ask you on, on what? Can you be more specific? What were they really most interested in? That's I was asking, what did they home in on with you? And also, what did they want more specifics on? You know, I think and for who? them, the, yeah. well, the, the, you know, with respect to what I know as a witness, because that's what you get called for, yep. you know, as a witness. It's not your opinion or yep. or anything like that. So it, it really dealt with the Senate committee hearing. Um, they wanted to know more about Giuliani. Why was it odd? How was this different than other Senate committee meetings? And, and I just had to be very clear that this was something I had never seen before. Um, the fact that Giuliani and Ray Smith um, and the, the rest of Trump's legal team, including Jenna Ellis, were allowed to basically take over the Georgia Senate mm-hmm. and, and present in a way that was very one-sided, that other witnesses that could offer a counter weren't allowed, um, and that with respect to the minority party members, we weren't really, we had no clue what was happening. It was all kind of happening in real time. And so with respect to any pushback, any questioning, we're literally having, I remember I had to Google who is John Eastman, because it was one of those things I hadn't, and remember this is December, right? December 3rd, right after the election, we're still in the middle of COVID. Um, and and I'm thinking, what what's going on here? And um, it's one of those situations where when you have the the then president of the United States tweeting out um, for folks, all of his followers to tune in to OAN for the live streaming of this hearing, it became clear at that point um, that that there was something more to this than people just trying to get to the truth of what happened in our state. Jen, you've told uh, this story, recounted these events uh, repeatedly. Uh, over the course of this investigation, over the course of this process. Was there anything that you were asked yesterday by the grand jury that surprised you or seemed off base or that you weren't necessarily prepared for, given your specific knowledge of what happened? You know, I don't think so. Um, I think they had very specific factual questions. Um, again, as the first witness, I think they were a little overwhelmed by, by kind of the role that they were about to play. But look, I was there to really kind of set the scene and kind of begin the story because really, from my perspective, what happened in Georgia was just the implementation um, of the overall plan um, at the federal level. So if you look at Georgia and then you look at the federal indictment, everything that they wanted to do or plan to do, they were actually doing on the ground in this state. And so I think that's why it's so incredibly important you know, I think the federal indictment and prosecution is important, but I think with respect to Georgia, it is so important that we actually hold folks accountable here for what they did in trying to overturn um, the election and, and really, um, you know, try to undermine our democracy. And it looks like the district attorney is willing to do that. Um, you're, you're also an attorney. So let me let me ask you this, because you told us a few weeks ago, you don't want to take a swing at the former president of the United States and then miss. So put your attorney cap on for a moment. How, how strong do you think Bonnie Willis's case is here after reading the indictment? I, I think it's incredibly strong. I mean, look, if you go through and you look at the overt acts, and if you remember, 
and your folks have talked about in terms of RICO, um, conspiracy is when you have an agreement, right? Mm-hmm. And you can show that there there is kind of this, this meeting of the minds. We all sat down and said, this is what we're going to do. With RICO, you really use the overt acts of certain actors to show the agreement, the scheme, the plan. So if you go through and look at the predicate acts, the overt acts, and the predicate acts really are, um, you have to break certain laws, right? You have to do some overt illegal things um, in order to kind of meet the very basics of RICO. And so with respect to that, if you go through that indictment, almost all of the predicate acts or the overt acts, um, they have quotations, right? So what you know about that is that there is a a piece of paper, there is um, a witness, there is a recording where with respect to those quoted portions, um, that they have evidence with respect to that. So this isn't just them flying blind or or making assumptions or, or, or even allegations with respect to everything in that indictment. They have some evidence to show that. And I tell you what, that, that's incredibly strong, especially, um, you know, right out of the box. Jen, just going back to something you said about the, the grand jury, you being the first witness, um, the magnitude of that moment and their kind of recognition of that that you observed, what, what signaled that to you? I, I think it's completely uh, how anybody would feel in that moment. But how did you kind of pick up on that uh, during the, the question and answers? You know, I think it's how they were looking at me, how they were really trying. I mean, they're trying to assess my credibility. Who am I? What do? What am I bringing to the table? Like, exactly what am I trying to establish as a witness? But also, I think there was the feeling in there. Um, for me, it was incredibly overwhelming. I mean, this has, you know, I've been a part of this since 2020. And, you know, going through death threats and the ups and the downs and being questioned um, and, and told that what I saw really wasn't what I saw. Um, you know, for me, it was overwhelming. And and I think they felt the same thing. And the prosecution team that was in there, they were incredibly respectful and, and really did respond to the grand jurors in terms of what they wanted to know or you know what their questioning was. So it, it was just one of those processes that I think we all knew um, you know, that this was something different and, and it really did have that heavy feeling. We appreciate you being with us, especially for your first interview after having that experience. Thank you very much, Jen. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. Donald Trump now has to turn himself in to face charges in Georgia. What could his defense in the case look like? We're going to ask David Schoen, Trump's former lawyer, who defended him at his second impeachment trial. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, we're learning more about the attorney who will be representing former President Trump in this Georgia case. Drew Fendling is a high-profile Atlanta attorney best known for representing rappers like Cardi B. On social media, he dubs himself the hashtag billion dollar lawyer. And notably, he's been outspoken about his liberal political views and his distaste for Donald Trump. In 2017, Fendling tweeted that Trump's, quote, position on the Central Park Five is racist, cruel, sick, unforgivable, and un-American. In 2018, he wrote, the racist architect of fraudulent Trump University criticizing LeBron, the founder of a free school for children, POTUS pathetic once again. And when Roe versus Wade was overturned last year, he said on Instagram that he was committed to, quote, fighting to restore a woman's right to choose, which has been destroyed by the Supreme Court. 
When asked about these differences, Finling told The New York Times, quote, I do not believe that we choose our client or clients based on race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender, political belief, or the substantive issues involved in the crime. We have our personal lives and we have our personal politics. I don't apologize for my personal politics. That's his quote. He also told The Insider that the investigation into Trump is an erroneous and politically driven persecution. Joining us now is former President Trump's defense lawyer, David Schoen. He represented the former president in his second impeachment trial. David, we always appreciate having you on and for your candor. Thanks for being with us in a morning um, like this. If you were Trump's defense counsel, what would your first move be here? Uh, let me just back up one second. I think you did a great service to the viewers by having that last guest on. The idea of having insight into the grand jury process is almost unprecedented. It's very important. The only thing I would add is I personally think it was it was reckless to have a one day grand jury like that in a case this complicated with this kind of indictment, because while she Miss Jordan is absolutely right, grand juries jurors get to ask questions. What they don't have any idea of is the exculpatory evidence. It would be impossible to present the grand jury with the exculpatory evidence. That is the other side of the story in one day like this. That's important. Also, the low bar for getting indictment is important and the presumption of innocence is important. Now back to your question. <laughs> I think that the first move has to be uh, the first move has to be moving, uh, removing this case to federal court. I think it fits clearly within the statute 28 U.S.C. 1442 A, which permits a federal official to move the case into federal court but, if the acts alleged. Yeah. Are, uh, go ahead. You I just want to ask you because you bring up the statute. <laughs> 1442. And what that statute says um, is that you basically have to be within the outer perimeter of the official duties of office. And we just saw in the New York case when they tried to move the Bragg case to federal court, Judge Hellerstein said, no, those actions were not within that perimeter. Are you so sure these are? I am sure they are, but that's a very different case. You make an excellent point. It's a very different case. In that case, of course, what Judge Hellerstein went off on was that Donald Trump, according to Judge Hellerstein's findings at least, did those on his personal agenda. It was having to do with Stormy Daniels, uh, covering up an embarrassing situation, etc. In this case, it directly relates to the president, former president's official acts. Let me read you the statute. It says, remove any criminal case from state court if it's for or relating to any act performed by or for them under color of their office. And the 11th Circuit construes it pretty broadly. The act was amended to not require any causal connection. So there's an 11th Circuit case called Caver versus Alabama Electric Co-op that says if the act is just associated with the official position. I think a Can starting I just ask point you one other the defense thing? in this case. One other thing, and then I'm going to let my brilliant no, co-anchor fill in here. But Norm Eisen brought this up last night. He calls you he calls you a very fine criminal defense lawyer, but he brought up a case that he thinks trumps what the 11th Circuit said, and that's Malcolm versus Martin, that says an officer who acts out of any personal interest, check, malice, or criminal intent to do his duty does not get removal, removal to federal court. Right. But we get to that question later, what the intent was and all of that. The um, uh, the, the key question here is, you know, uh, let me tell, I'll tell you what my starting point is. My starting point is Article two, Section one and Section three of the Constitution. These require the president to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. The defense story of this case is, of course, diametrically opposed to the prosecution story. The defense story would be President Trump and all of those around him believed at all times that there was election fraud, there were irregularities, 
that what he was saying, he believed in. And so we don't just focus on the excerpt from that tape. We play the whole tape. And that talks about all the irregularities they thought there were at the time. And if that's the case, then he had an obligation, would be the defense, to see that the law, take care that the laws are mm -hmm. faithfully executed. So clearly acting as president, the only reason they got this forum was because he was the president at the time. The only reason the secretary of state would pick up the phone or the governor um, was because he was president. Therefore, I say they're associated with um, the act in his official capacity. And that's what the 11th Circuit says, mm -hmm. I think, is how the statute is construed. That's my view of it. I appreciate it. Can I just ask, yeah. in terms of this being one of the first moves that we both think that his defense team will make and, and that you think that they should make, uh, this may be a simplistic version of events, given the statutes you and Poppy have been going back and forth on to some degree, um, is the only reason to try and move this uh, to the federal side to take away the possibility of the president not being able to pardon himself if we were to win re-election? Because that's kind of on, on its face what it appears to be. First of all, between Poppy and me, I'd go with Poppy on the legal advice question. No. But secondly, uh, directly, to your directly to your question, I would say, uh, no, I think there are a number of reasons. I think you certainly expand the jury poll. You know better than I, uh, although I happen to be here, but you know better than I how strongly uh, Democratic Fulton County voted in the last election and generally. Um, this would broaden the jury pool to outlying counties, uh, in the Northern District of Georgia. So that's a very important factor. It also would separate uh, President Trump from other defendants in this case. I happen to think it's unworkable to even consider trying all of these defendants together. We have the experience here in Atlanta with a case currently pending now, the Young Thug case, um, in which jury selection takes over six months, trial right. estimate anywhere nine months to two years. That's unworkable. But, but to my initial question, I, those are all great points. Um, one of the pieces of moving it to the federal side would be to eliminate the possibility that a state prosecution would occur, he would go to state prison and therefore could not pardon himself, right? Like whether or not that's the intent, that would yeah. certainly be part uh, of it. Could, could be, and as, you, as I'm sure you know, you know Georgia has a, a unique, not unique, but one of three states in the country that doesn't permit the governor to grant a right. pardon. It, uh, and there are many other requirements. You know, you have to have been five years past any sentence in the case and so on, and it goes to a board. I mean, the legislature could change that. But yes, maybe the pardon idea is an interesting idea. But I think that the primary thing would be, um, you know, the, other, the reasons underlying the statute and, in this case, the jury pool would be primary reasons to remove it to federal court. All right, David, uh, we appreciate your time as always. We literally got to the first step, the defense team would be making. We have about 16 more to go through here, but I so you found that, come I back? found that very helpful. So we're going to have to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, we always appreciate it. Come back soon, David. Thanks very much. Uh, Trump is now facing 91 charges in four jurisdictions. Think about that. We just heard from one of his former impeachment attorneys and one of the witnesses who testified to the Georgia grand jury. We'll have our experts here to put it all into context for you. We'll be right back. Former President Trump lashing out after the Fulton County Grand Jury decided to indict him and 18 alleged co-conspirators. Trump has taken aim at District Attorney Fonnie Willis throughout this two-year-plus investigation. And last night, after news of the indictment broke, his campaign released a statement calling her a, quote, rabid partisan and a biased prosecutor. 
Let's discuss all of these developments overnight with our political commentator, former special advisor to President Obama, Van Jones, CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, co-author of Politico's New York playbook, essential reading, I should note, Emily No, and CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, is back at the table. Let me actually start with you, Emily. You're, you haven't been with us yet this morning. After reading through this indictment, let's talk about politically how it plays. We'll get to what's going to happen in the courtroom. But what does this mean for Donald Trump? So by now, the former president and his counsel, his supporters, have a playbook in mind. This is their fourth indictment in about as many months. And they know they're going to attack the prosecutor. They're going to call it a witch hunt. They're going to go after uh, President Biden's so-called cronies. And that's their line of attack, is to keep pushing back and not address the substance of the charges. What strikes me as unique in this indictment is that it's both sweeping and narrow in scope at the same time. And so many people who are up and down the totem pole in Trump's world are now indicted as well. And they're part of this whole mess that he's created for himself. Ben, how do you think the 18 people indicted? This is the first time we had unindicted co-conspirators and the special Mm -hmm. counsel's last charges. Um, these 18 individuals, you know, you talk about uh, uh, Rico, you think mob, you think flipping, you think people. I mean, Trump's been financing, which is totally legal, totally fine. Uh, the defense for his friends, allies, 18 people here. Uh, they woke up in a different world. Uh, this is a different prosecutor. Uh, this, is, this is literally the mirror image of what Jack Smith did. Jack Smith said, a lot of bad people here. I'm going after one person, Donald Trump. I'm going to leave everybody else alone. They'll be unindicted co-conspirators. This prosecutor says, uh-uh, all y'all in trouble. Everybody going to get it. That has not happened before. And so these people wake up in a very different world. Uh, this prosecutor, unlike Jack Smith, who said, I'm going to have hands off of Mark Meadows. This prosecutor says, no, you're in it too. So, you, so these people, if Mark Meadows thought he was home safe because he was cooperating, he's not home safe. If all these unindicted co-conspirators thought they were, they're all indicted. So this is actually more normal. This is what we see every day at the neighborhood level. Uh, four kids know each other. One kid does something bad. They all get in trouble. That's, that's just normal. Uh, prosecutors usually throw a, uh, they don't just throw the book at you. They throw the library at you. That's what happened. They just, this woman, she threw the library at all these people. That's what happens every day in these courts. And so to the extent that people were saying that Donald Trump was getting a, a, a excessively bad treatment, all the other prosecu- prosecutions up to now, indictments up to now, were unusual because so many people yeah. were able to get off scot-free. Not this time. One really interesting point from that is that when you go after one person, it can be more expeditious. It can be faster. faster. What we're seeing right now in this other RICO case that Fannie Willis is overseeing in Atlanta is it may turn out to be the longest criminal trial in the history yeah of that county. That's how long a lot of these RICO cases take. She's throwing the library at all of them, and she told Sarah Murray that she's going to try them all at once. I think that, You don't think right. that's going to happen. No way. But the point is, does it really slow things down? Oh, we're going to be living with this one forever. I mean, I think this one will outlast all the others. This one will be the last one resolved. It may outlast her. I mean, if you... Possibly. <laughs> you mean in terms of her term in office? Yeah. If you look at history yep. here... The longest trial on the books in the history of the United States federal courts is 18 defendants in the Pizza Connection case um, in the Southern District of New York. It started in 1985. It ended in 1987 with 18 convictions. Two defendants were murdered. One was acquitted. But scalably, that's the only thing we have to compare. 
And, and the Supreme Court has since gotten tougher. On and that's a two-year trial. What they trial. call mega trials. They don't want to see 18 defendants tried at once. But another important point here, this is the check writing portion of the proceedings. When Fannie Willis is saying, well, I charge you. But the check cashing part is much tougher, right? It's easy, it's easy to indict. Let's just be honest. I did it. I mean, it's not hard to walk into a grand jury and walk out with an indictment. But she's going to have to prove every one of these cases. There is no such thing as an easy one of these. Every one of these is either going to have to work out a plea deal or go to trial. That's going to take a long time. Ellie, don't minimize your efforts, okay? (laughs) (laughs) It took no skill in the grand jury. Trust me. Um, The point that David Schoen was just making, we've heard from the defense, uh, or Paula Reed made the point earlier, they think one of the first steps will be what David Schoen was just talking about, try and move jurisdictionally over to the federal side of things. Schoen seems convinced that this is plausible. We've heard from several other people that say, not, no chance. 100% Trump will make that motion, strategically right. should. I just heard the back and forth with Poppy and Schoen. I'm 50-50. I mean, I can really? see this one either way. Because Schoen's argument, and it's a good one, is the president has to handle the take care clause, as we call it, take care that the laws are faithfully enforced. But the response from prosecutors that Poppy articulated, quoting Norm, was this was the opposite of what a president is supposed to be doing from the White House as president. But the stakes here are huge. If he gets into federal court, he gets a way better jury pool, as you noted, could be pardonable and can ask for immunity, can say, okay, federal courts, you've taken my case. Now, as a federal officer, next step, throw it out and I'm done. That's going to be potentially dispositive here. You're not Emily. So there is uh, overlap between this case and Jack Smith's on the election interference front, those allegations. But again, the, the question of whether he could pardon himself if indeed he is elected back into the White House is a big one. Now, anything in state court, be that New York or, Glor- or Georgia, pardon me, it's, it's, there's nothing he can do about it per se. But goes back to the federal jurisdiction. Then that question becomes a big one and something that we are talking about throughout the campaign season again. Yeah, this is like a law school hypothetical. Like, what if he wins the election, gets rid of the, the federal cases? Can he be tried in state court? The answer is probably, almost certainly no, not while he's president. But it's all in play. Um, love those hypotheticals. Uh, <laughs> I many- do want to ask you, you made an interesting point, though, whether intentional or unintentional. Uh, I, I, it struck me because you said, you know, this is the opposite of what a president should have been doing, which was quite literally the point Ruby Freeman made when she was testifying to the January 6th committee about what it was like to have a president attacking her. Yeah. Um, She's central in this case. Sure, and uh, Ruby Freeman is uh, the, the best American you can imagine. Uh, she's African-American woman, decides she's going to help her neighbors vote. She's just, that's, that's what she's trying to do. She, you know, puts out a little uh, a card table, helps her neighbors vote, turns in the paperwork, and suddenly the president of the United States is attacking her as someone who has destroyed democracy. Now, she, she's doing more for democracy than, than I did. You know, all I did was turn my vote in. She, try, she tried to help her neighbors vote. And her life has been a living hell. And the fact that a prosecutor is sticking up for her, saying that she can't be treated this way, saying that she's as, as important to the system as anybody else, and nobody, let alone the president of the United States, should ruin someone's life with lies when they're doing a good job, I think is really, really important. And I think that's the, the human aspect here. You know, when you have a president like a Donald Trump, uh, who will do anything, destroy anybody to hold on to power. Well, you know what? That could be you or me. I go, well, I could be Donald Trump, and, and he's getting indicted for me. No, he's not. He's not getting indicted for you. Uh, uh, Ms. Freeman is more like you, mm-hmm. and she's being defended by the system as she should be. Mm-hmm. And her, t- what would be testimony in this trial, will be actually seen by people. And I think that's 
I know that's what makes this so different. There would be cameras in this courtroom. It's not a federal proceeding yet. Likely cameras in this state courtroom. And she would likely be a key witness. And that brings the humanity of all of these alleged crimes, I think, to the fore, John. I, I also think that having cameras in the courtroom, which is the federal courts have lagged behind this, you know, in some draconian way uh, where they are open to the public, but not all the public, because not everybody can get down to the courthouse. Um, when the trial is televised, the, the jury of public opinion gets to form those opinions about what really went on in court, not the snapshot. And mm -hmm. those moments, a witness like that, have real power. All right. Van, Emily, John, Ellie, stay with us. We've got a lot more to dig into here. Uh, but first, we want to get back to this story, a very important story. The governor of Hawaii calling it a tragedy. Beyond tragedies, more bodies found after last week's deadly fires. We're going to have a report from Maui next. About an hour from now, Mar-a-Lago property manager Carlos de Oliveira will be arraigned in federal court in Florida. This isn't a completely separate federal case involving former President Trump. De Oliveira is one of three defendants, including Trump, charged in the classified documents probe. Carlos Suarez following all of it live in Fort Pierce, Florida. Carlos, good morning. Walk us through what today will be like. What's the significance of him appearing in court today? Well, Poppy, uh, good morning. So Carlos de Oliveira is uh, facing uh, several charges, including uh, one for conspiracy of trying to obstruct justice as well as lying to federal investigators. Now, the 56-year-old has yet to enter a plea in his case because he did not have a Florida-based attorney. But now that he does, we expect him to plead not guilty uh, at his arraignment here later this morning to charges that he schemed with former President Donald Trump to try and delete surveillance video from Trump's Mar-a-Lago property. That's a video that was sought by federal investigators in the Trump classified documents case. Now, according to prosecutors, De Oliveira asked another Trump staffer, someone who works in IT, about purging the video after federal investigators showed up at Mar-a-Lago to retrieve several classified documents. Uh, the indictment alleges that the 56-year-old told this IT staffer, quote, the boss wants the server deleted. De Oliveira is facing four counts, including lying to the FBI about helping Walt Nauda. He is the former president's personal aide. He's uh, charged with uh, helping Nauda to move these boxes that had these classified uh, documents. Prosecutors say that the surveillance video shows both of these men moving these boxes around the Mar-a-Lago property after the Justice Department had subpoenaed those documents. Again, we expect Dole, uh, De Oliveira to be in court this morning with his Florida-based attorney, and we expect him to plead not guilty to his charges. Guys? Carlos, thank you. We'll be watching. Uh, we've got Van, Emily, John, and Ellie back with us, and I appreciate Poppy what did desperately I do? trying to explain that this is a different case from another different I know. case. But no, no, no. But the point the being that the, the, the scale of this and this moment. On April 1st, there had never been a former president of the United States who had been indicted. Yeah. Donald Trump has now been indicted uh, four times, 91 charges, a special counsel in New York, in Fulton County as well. And what was so striking, our colleague Stephen Collinson, who brilliantly uh, captures things every single morning on CNN.com. So the true. lead of his story, the most astonishing aspect of former President Trump's fourth criminal indictment is not the scale of an alleged multi-layered conspiracy to steal Georgia's electoral votes in 2020 from the rightful winner. 
It is that Trump, the accused kingpin of the scheme to overturn Joe Biden's victory, who was charged on Monday along with 18 others, could in 17 months be raising his right hand as the 47th president and swearing to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution he was accused of plotting to shred. That's not hyperbole and it's not overstatement here. And I think it's tough to get your head around it to some degree. Absolutely. It's always important to take a step back and look at the historical context of this. We say it all the time, especially on television, how unprecedented these indictments are. The fact that he's under scrutiny of criminal charges for uh, basically wanting to push his own agenda on the American people, everyday people who are poll workers, uh, caught up in the whole mess of it. And to think that if this case in particular remains in the state courts and it's televised, I want to stress that television is Donald Trump's preferred medium. Before he was a politician, he was host of The Apprentice. Now we could, as the campaign season unfolds, have a reality show that is again of his making, but not on his terms. So it'll be interesting to see that contrast play out from a political viewpoint. It's a great point because if any of these are televised, Donald Trump will be sitting there, but silent. I mean, you do not get to get up and make speeches or sit at the head of the boardroom when you're at the defendant's table. And also to, to Emily's point, you know, when Donald Trump first got arrested, indicted back in April in New York, it was surreal. And all of these feel surreal. I still can hardly believe I'm looking at state of Georgia versus Donald John Trump. But this is also very real. And this is not done. It's not like the indictments drop and then what do we think of them? And then there's voting. I mean, over the next 17 months before the election, we are going to see legal arguments. We are going to see pretrial motions. We could see cases get dismissed. We could see guilty pleas from other people. We could see trials. I think you guys are the political, well, Van is the political expert, and Emily, um, I think this will be the dominant story of the 2024 election. Uh, It's probably the only story because uh, Democrats aren't going to have a primary. So this is a campaign. This is what you're seeing is a campaign. 24-hour coverage of Donald Trump. And by the way, I don't think he's mad about it. What do you want in a campaign? You want to be able to raise money? He's raising more money than, than his, his, his opponents. You want to be able to cut off the oxygen for your opponents in terms of attention. We're not talking about anybody but Donald Trump. And by the way, uh, you, know, you want to be able to uh, dominate news cycle, which he can do. I will say this. They just showed 91. <laughs> they had the word 91 charges. I would say one thing. If you're a, a Republican voter and there was someone applying for a job with you, facing 91 charges, would you hire them? The only question I would ask you, would you hire them? You would not. You would not. And yet you may vote for someone to be president of the United States with 91 charges against him. It's unbelievable. Where he's innocent until proven guilty. But as you said, it is the campaign. Donald Trump, I mean, if you've been following him since the indictments and charges started rolling out one after another after another, has not been called on to speak about issues, the economy, uh, employment, migrants, anything. Um, His campaign is now based on, it's a one-issue campaign. They're after me. They're trying to get me because they really want to get you. Um, And the victimology, as he's framed it, seems to work only to the extent that every time he blasts out those ads, Donald Trump needs your help now. You know, the donations of 2 and 5 and $10 yeah. start rolling in again. The question is, have we taken him off the hook as a candidate? You know, I think Emily started this conversation with a really good point about it's always important to stay, take, a, take a step back. Can you just thread the through line for us, Van, through all four of these cases? And you bring up victims, the real victims here. We talk about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Also, in the last federal indictment, there's a civil rights violation charge as well. Yeah. I mean, What's the through line? 
if you were a, a sane person uh, and you were living in a country where you went to vote, your neighbors went to vote, and there's somebody who was in the White House who said, I don't care what your vote was. I don't care what your choice was. I don't care about your voice. I don't care that you, that you read all these uh, articles. I don't care you listen to all these podcasts. I don't care that you have to, to wait in line uh, with your kid. I don't care that you coordinate. I don't care about you at all. I'm going to throw your vote in the garbage can. I'm going to do whatever I can to stay in office because I don't want to leave. You would say there's something wrong with that guy and there's something wrong with our system if it doesn't respond. There's something wrong with our system if it doesn't stick up for me. There's something wrong with our system if, no, if nobody gets in trouble for that at all. That's what you would, if you're a sane person in a normal society. But instead, what's happening is people are saying, no, no, no. If Donald Trump wants to do all those things, it's okay. And if the system responds, there's something wrong with the system. There's something wrong with the system sticking up for me and my, my, vo my, vo my voice and my vote. There's something wrong with the system that, that would want a powerful person to respond to the law and the Constitution in a good way. And that's what's going on. We, we've gone through the looking glass now where people are actually more interested in one person getting their way than having their own vote, vote count. Thank you all. We're going to be talking about this for a very long time. It is the story that is for sure we appreciate it. Also, though, paying close attention to Hawaii, the devastation there this morning blamed for 99 deaths. Officials warning that number could double in just the coming days. We have a live report on the ground in Maui. And we're going to take you to Hawaii now, where at least 99 people have died after those horrific wildfires in Maui. The governor says that number is likely to increase only 20, with only 25% of the fire-ravaged area currently searched. And the search, as it goes on, another daunting task, finding shelter for the thousands left without a home. CNN's Mike Valerio has more from Maui. Poppy and Phil, good morning. Well, you know, today will mark one week since this catastrophe began. And before sunset yesterday, we heard comments from Hawaii Governor Josh Green. And he said, over the next 10 days, this staggering death toll of 99, it has the potential to double. The scale of the devastation, unimaginable. Nothing can prepare you for what I saw during my time here. The loss of life, staggering. It's a tragedy beyond tragedies. The road ahead for those who call Maui home, uncertain. Patience, prayers, perseverance. That's what we need. Crews with cadaver dogs are sifting through the ashes of incinerated homes and historic landmarks left in the wake of the deadliest wildfires the U.S. has seen in a century. 25% of the area has been searched. We started with one dog, we're at 20. We can only move as fast as we can. While the number of those unaccounted for is still unknown, the death toll will continue rising. We call it search and rescue, of course, but it's really searching uh, to find those who we've lost. Though an official cause of the fires has yet to be determined, Hawaiian Electric, the state's primary electric provider, facing a lawsuit claiming power lines blown over by high winds helped ignite the inferno. This amid reports firefighters contended with sputtering hydrants from weak water pressure, melted pipes, and low water supply. And just leaving a house to burn because we don't have enough water is like something I've never experienced before. Yet in the face of loss and frustration. It's a big ohana here on the island. The community coming together in shared grief and hope. We will survive from the ashes. We will survive. 
So we have the epicenter of the loss of life, Lahaina, by the Pacific Ocean. But where we are this morning, these are the slopes of Maui's highest mountain. And in this area, there are still hot spots. There is still a large wildfire burning the ashen backdrop right here all throughout this neighborhood. And this specific wildfire, 65% contained after one week of burning. Poppy and Phil, back to you. Mike Valerio reporting for us from Hawaii. We'll keep a spotlight on Hawaii and the devastation there and update you. Thank you for starting your morning with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow morning. Our coverage of this historic fourth indictment of President Trump continues. CNN News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.